Let's get into this. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's June 2022 and the UK has realised that a country being governed by a fat, preposterous-haired, overprivileged arsehole who's mired in misconduct and always makes it about him was much funnier when it was happening to America, not us. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you once again for that lovely introduction, and uh, let's just get into it. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with intermissions so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterboxd.com slash doublereel where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you use as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 26. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, we're looking at Caro and Junet's French surrealist work, The City of Lost Children. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Pump Up the Volume. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 26, we cover the decades-long journey of Claire Noto's The Tourist. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses the critically and commercially disastrous 2002 version of Rollerball. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature The Big Conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 26, we look at real people whose lives should be made into a film. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine Letters page. On our classic City of Lost Children, Rob says, I loved it, a must for Terry Gilliam fans. Talking about new releases, uh, Teddy says, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is one of the best multiverse films I've seen, although Jet Li's The One is my favourite. That's a blast from the past. On our Kubrick entry, Gary says, Far and away my favourite Kubrick film, Doctor Strangelove, and one of my favourites ever. Lauren says Peter Sellers' best work is in this film, along with being there. On our... Yes, retarded, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I think of, I think. That's not even the it's right perfect. From that it's perfect, it's perfect, yeah. On our one that got away, The Tourist, Patrick says it's a bummer this didn't get made. Tom says reminds me of that Scarlett Johansson film, Under the Skin. Yes, we'll go in, in the feature, we'll go into why so many subsequent films are reminiscent of this one. On our hidden gem, Pump Up the Volume, Ashish says, Watch this for the first time recently, a good film for the rebel and everyone. A few head-scratching moments, but it was the 90s after all. On our remake, Hey, Watch Rollerball, Pete says, The original combined sport and world politics, and it worked. Granted, you watch it now and it's dated, but I imagine when it first came out, it was cutting edge. I didn't even get all the way through the new one. Sean says, Remakes of good R-rated films turned into PG-13 drivel are just the worst. We have some comments on our big conversation topic, but we're saving them for real too. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. 
Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Just to quickly mention our other podcast, which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film, not very far sometimes, and talk about stories, news, and anything else that has caught our attention. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Versus The Second Amendment, is out now. So that piece of um, self-promotion out the way, um, the first thing we usually cover in our roundup is the news. So what news has caught your eye, James? Um, Well, I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but it's become a big deal. Um, the the new Lightyear film came out, which seemed like a pretty inoffensive film for kids to go and watch because they like Toy Story. Yeah. But apparently, there's a same sex kiss in it, and obviously the Bible Belt's kicking off about it. And I saw a couple. What did I say? I saw a couple posts on Reddit. Actually, it was like, okay. I am a Christian woman, and I have no problem with gay people. But did we have to have um, a gay kiss in that, like a same sex kiss in that film? Blah blah blah. And I was like. Isn't it funny how people who always say they have no problem with it always find a way to have a problem with it? Yeah. So that that was that's what I saw. That was pretty much yesterday. So that's kind of the one that's fresh in my mind. Yeah, and you you get you get a bit of this around in other markets. Like you find out that the Chinese market is like censored or severely cut films that have got you know anything like you know remotely progressive in it, um, which is disappointing. And it's uh, often you're stuck with it because they're. um, there's such a, a strong market now it's i think we just have to you know i think we have to put up with it what but carry on doing it if you see what i mean i think the the fact that it's in the fact that it's in light year but everyone thinks it's a pretty inoffensive film i think is a sign that you just got to carry on doing it and hopefully these shitty voices will just shut up eventually yeah for me a lot of the news has been like some sad um, passings of of, of yeah, greats yeah, of the film industry. I mean, a few weeks back, probably not long after we uh, released our last episode, Vangelis died, um, the legendary composer who is kind of more known for what he did sort of in the 80s that, you know, hasn't done as much these days, but he had some absolutely iconic film scores like Chariots of Fire uh, and Blade Runner. He also did a really good score for Ridley Scott's film 1492, and he he passed away which was sad news. There were a lot of tributes for, for him. He's, he's one of those people that, even though he wasn't making film music for a long time, I think he was um, he was very influential while he was doing it, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. And obviously, uh, Ray Liotta uh, died as well a couple of weeks back. He's immortal in our family, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, I stuck this on the socials. Uh, the socials. I stuck, I stuck this on the socials. Uh, when There's always a funny story in our family that, that my... Um, I can't remember which way around. I think it was my dad, or my, I can't. I can't remember what, who was on what side of the conversation. But I remember my parents telling me that they ended up having a, a, an argument that lasted three days and, and ended up them not speaking to each other because one parent was trying to talk about a particular, you know, film actor that they really liked who'd been in, um, uh, you know, Copland and Goodfellas and, and something with Whoopi Goldberg and how they quite liked him and what film he was doing next. Uh, and the other part of the family thought they were talking about some sort of um, aquatic mammal. Uh, based in in a, near a town in Essex, um, because she thought he thought she was talking about the Rayleigh Otter, and it's just like it's not that funny in itself, but the idea of them arguing about it for three days is fucking hilarious. 
Still blows my mind how that went on for three days. Surely. Yes, like at no point did someone say, like, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Ray Liotta, it's amazing that he's, his his star burned so brightly for, for Goodfellas in 1990, but there's not that many things that he did that... Um, that have the same stature as in terms of performance and wonder why he didn't get as many roles afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Because his agent picking like bad choices or him picking bad choices. <clears throat> it's hard to say. It could, it could be a bunch of things. It could be the fact that aside from Goodfellas, he was always going to be this guy who's really good in the films that he's in. He was going, Oh look, Ray Otter, Yeah, he's good. And there was just one movie where it was absolutely perfect for him to be the lead guy. But I always felt there was more, more to come from him. And I couldn't tell you why it didn't happen. It's not like he didn't have a great career. He had a great career. It's just he had a, you know, if if like a, a musician's had a series of like decent, you know, uh, a, a, you know, decent commercially performing albums and singles, and then then, get, get, you know, goes multi platinum with one album. You wonder why? Oh, oh is that going to happen again or not? You know, it was like that. Yeah. Turn never mind. Another <clears throat> another actor who died who's quite. Um, He's he's the sort of actor that you'd see him and recognise him and everything. There's not everyone knows his name. It's Philip Baker Hall. Um, he died just just a few days back. Uh, he was ninety. He had a sixty year um, film career, which, which means he started relatively late, about thirty. Um, he also had a very illustrious theatre career, and people will recognise him because he was in quite a few Paul Thomas Anderson films. He was in um, uh, the Truman Show quite memorably as well, and he had quite a, quite a number of quite significant TV roles, like in uh, Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm. So that was. You know, by all accounts, he was um, quite happy and chilled out and just spending time with his family and then passed away peacefully at the age of 90 uh, after a long and successful career. So I think most people would envy um, the way Philip Baker Hall um, lived and died. But you always, when someone dies like that, you do sort of mourn their passing and think you're going to miss them, you know? Yeah. Any other news caught your eye? Um... No, it's, it's been other than like the passings. Obviously, Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey are being charged again. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, there was that. There was a discussion that Harvey Weinstein can be charged with another offence or set of offences. So I think other people have come forward, uh, or, or mm. of the other people that have come forward, they've been able to build a case for it now. So he could be um, back in court with his fake Zimmer frame. Um, mm. And Kevin Spacey has been. I think has he been extradited back to? Or no, he, he didn't. I don't think he had to be extradited. He said he'll come to the. All right, he's agreed. He's agreed to turn up. Yeah, so he's going to be facing charges for. Uh, I can't remember exactly what they are, but I mean they're serious offences relating to to sexual assault. Um, so that's that's pretty kind of. It wasn't a surprising news story in that sense because I think there'd been so much discussion of what he'd been accused of, but now he's going to end up in court for it, which is. To be honest, it's probably the best outcome because he's been, um, you know, he's been the subject of these discussions for so long. So he he needs to answer for them, you know, rather than just have it hanging over him. Yeah. Um, in sort of more actual film-related news or stuff that's going forward in the future, they're going to be doing a, a biopic of Madonna, and uh, Julia Garner is apparently in talks or rumored to have been offered the role of Madonna. She, you recognise her from. I think more TV Ozark. work. Like, yeah, Ozark, yeah. The Americans, and uh, Becoming, or Inventing Anna, I think it's called. She's a very good actress. And she's got a kind of... She's got she a kind looks of, like her. She looks like her. And, she's, and she's, got an, she's got an edge to her as well, which I think Madonna's always had an edge to her that, that you know, in the way that she's you know gone about her life. I think it's a really... It's, it's a nice fit, I think. Um, I wanted to comment... Uh, thinking of biopics, because obviously we're going to discuss this in, um, the, in Real 2. 
You see, I did this completely passing by, but you see who's playing Marilyn Monroe? Oh, v I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'll remember it when you say it. Guess the actress. Is it someone like... Is it, it's it's not, someone mental. It's not like Lily James, because she's she did nope, Pamela Anderson. She did Pamela Anderson. Anna de Armas, or Arma. You know what? She didn't speak English like four years ago, and now she's playing Marilyn Monroe. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I mean the thing is, because because she's a brunette, you kind of go really. But then I reckon done up to look like her, she, she could. Looks a bit like her, right enough in the photos that have been released, but I'm not too sure about it. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been some very good sort of biopic performances where um, the actor doesn't look exactly like them, but looks like them enough and provide you know put you know gives a good performance that portrays that person on screen. I mean. There's any number of them. I mean, really, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't look hugely like Johnny Cash, but sort of managed to for the purposes of the film. So I can um, see that working. Yeah, I agree. Although I think the problem you have with someone that famous, because Marilyn Monroe is like one of the most famous faces to have ever faced. Um, but I think the ones that do well are like the ones nobody knows about. So Jordan Belfort, nobody really knows who that fucker looks like. And Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't look anything like that cunt. Sorry, I really don't like Jordan Belfort. And then Matthew no, McConaughey he's an for um, Dallas Bears Club looks nothing like Ron Woodruff. Like, yeah, I mean, I've I've got a couple of people when we talk about you know people you know the possible future biopics where you actually go it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how much this person looks like the main character but, with Marilyn Monroe. I think it is important, isn't it? Because she's so iconic it? for how she looks. She, yeah, I mean, you know, Will Smith playing Ali was a similar one. When someone is that iconic, it's hard to imagine, but. See how she goes. She's really, she's very, very good. And I tell you what's interesting about her is a lot. I mean, Michelle Michelle Williams played Marilyn Monroe in that My Week with Marilyn film. I thought she was quite good. Um, There's nothing I, like her. Though. No, I think it's sometimes it's it's easier to do it when you're just doing. That was like one incident from her life, and that can sometimes be a bit easier. Yeah. But I think because I mean Marilyn Monroe has been impersonated and, and and emulated and copied a number of times, and what a lot of people miss is that although she was kind of seen as this kind of blonde bombshell, she always this always had this kind of however manufactured it was or wasn't because I, I don't know was she had, she was able to ha always have like quite a sweet sweet and innocent look about her whatever she was doing which meant she could play vulnerable it meant she could you know play kind of you know you know very sort of appealing uh, and I think Anna de Armas can do that too um so yeah it'll be interesting I I, I think that'll be worth a look anyway because she's a very good actress and we'll see there's so many other things going to it. Like apparently, Kristen Stewart's performances uh, as Princess Diana was very good. But the film around it was shit. Was your uh, your uh, uh, interpretation? Yeah, but the Kristen Stewart thing that that film was utter dog shit. And the problem I had with it was that it necessarily yeah it wasn't the best performance she could have given. But if she'd had a better director, and they'd actually just gone for a proper you know biopic story of that weekend as opposed to fictionalising that she could see Anne Boleyn and all that fucking nonsense. Sometimes that betrays a lack of confidence in the in the story that you're telling, doesn't it? Yeah, they didn't have the confidence to do that. Like, they didn't have the confidence of the crown to kind of just speculate what was said and just yeah. do a story, so they just tried to make out that she was completely barmy. Um, but yeah, um, it'd be interesting to see what these biopics do. I think the biopics that tend to do well are the ones that nobody knows a thing about. Uh, yeah, if you, if you remember famous. the Elton John film, Rocket Man, there was a lot of discussion about um, uh, Taron Egerton and how much he looked like Elton John. And he doesn't really, but obviously he had to do a huge amount of work to just emulate Elton John's look. And uh, Jamie Bell playing Bernie Taupin, his songwriting partner, he was able to... It's like, I'm sure he worked really hard to look and sound like Bernie Taupin, but no one knows what he looks and sounds like, so it was fine. It was like, okay, that's Bernie Taupin, is it? Carry on. 
Whereas with Elton John, you're looking at him going, okay, well, yes, he's got the glasses, he's done the hairline, and you actually you're scrutinising the actor a lot more, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Always see how that goes. I mean, <laughs> biopics and and uh, and their merits and pitfalls are, are something that we'll be discussing a fair bit in real too. Um, any other kind mm-hmm. of film announcements that have caught uh, out there that have caught your eye? Any sort of things that are going on? Um, not really. I've just, I've just got a couple of quick ones. I'll do the 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 the, the, the less discussable one first. There's going to be a sequel to Old Guard, the uh, sort of the Netflix movie that Charlize Theron did, um, which I quite liked. So I'll be happy to watch another one of those. And there's rumours of Uma Thurman and Henry Golding being involved. Um, Henry Golding obviously has earned a certain amount of credibility as an action film actor because he did that G.I. Joe thing and while that it was a I got no interest in anything in the G.I. Joe universe he looked quite good like he'd done some fight training and might come out uh, well from this and obviously Uma Thurman <clears throat> while I'm not a biggest her biggest fan her um <clears throat> her track record having been in stuff like Kill Bill it's obviously um be interesting to see what she does in the movie as well um so there's that one I don't know did you see the old guard the Charlie Theron film no it's all right. It's 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 a because Charlie Charlie Stone's good value in an action film. You know things like Atomic Blonde and uh, Mad Max Fury Road, and that this isn't as good as that. But because she's carrying the movie and gets plenty to do, it's it's worth a watch for that. So I'm happy to see a sequel to that. And there's a sequel to Joker, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker film, Joker. Oh two. yeah, I saw that with uh, Lady Gaga playing Harley Quinn, and it's going yeah. to be a musical. Yeah, I mean the thing about Lady Gaga is I think she's really good. I I've, I've thought she's been very good in everything that she's done, and I can totally see her playing Harley. Quinn. Part of me thinks is that stepping on um, Margot Robbie's toes a bit, but they do have this thing in DC now where they're saying, "Look, it's okay. There's going to be lots of different interpretations to different characters." There's a there's a Joker in um, uh, what you might call it in um, you know the Robert Pattinson Batman films is no doubt going to be in the next film, um, and you know there's Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. So it's just it's it's like they do it. They they have different people interpreting the, the, the roles, but doing it as a musical. Um, I'm skeptical, shall we say? Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. It might work because the two leads are very strong, but I don't trust Todd Phillips to do a I, musical. I also think Joker de- depend lent very heavily on Joaquin Phoenix's performance, and I'm sure he'll, I'm sure he'll be just as good this time and everything. But it feels like, guys, you did it. You did well to achieve everything you did last time. Is it? tempting fate to go back do you know what i mean i know it made a lot of money so there's always the temptation to do it but i wonder if the that what they did with that story it's been done and i don't think there's needs to be any more because otherwise it turns into like smallville or gotham who's going when's batman going to turn up and then when batman does turn up it's not a joker film anymore it's a batman film so uh. yeah but i'm not sure i i don't want to talk too much about it or analyze it too much because when we do that it will be shit yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we just let them do the thing and watch it. Don't, yeah, don't even watch the trailer. Just watch yeah, it when yeah, it comes. Yeah, in. yeah, I agree. And Whacking uh, Phoenix is always worth watching. So let's see. Exactly. Yeah. So now, normally we talk about new films coming out, but James, you said you had a, a something to add that we could throw in for the podcast. Would now be a good yeah, time to discuss just, that? I think I think you're doing well with your resolution. I've watched a couple films this month, but I think just to kind of do something a little bit more refreshing. Have you heard of Wordle? Yes, I have, yeah. Right, so it spawned loads of, um, like, mutant variations. Like, like imitations, of yeah. Yeah. So there's Worldle, where you try and guess the country by the shape of the country. There's Herdle, where you try and guess the song from the intro. And there's some movie-related ones. Now, I play four of them every day. 
Yeah. Um, I can run through them all, but I thought maybe each episode we play one and see who gets it the quickest. Yeah. So we pick one. So there's actoral, and that one probably doesn't work well. You basically get to see the genre of the film. The letters of the film have been scored out and replaced with X's, and you have to basically guess the, the actor from those that film. Yeah. So it's got like his entire filmography from about 20, his or her filmography. There's Movie-Dill, where it plays you a clip from a film and it's sped up and you've got to basically try and guess the film from like a one second clip. There's poster though, where you've got to guess the poster of the movie and it starts all pixelated and zoomed in and it zooms out and becomes clearer and clearer. Um, or there's this one called Framed, where you have six frames of a movie and you have to guess the the film from these six frames. So what one would you like to play? We could have a that's little an, competition. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting one. That could be fun. I mean, obviously it's a shame there's not an audio based one. Um, because obviously like that would be easy. probably like a movie score one, or you know, just let to, me to, have a look. See, if there's one that says like, "Here is here is a clip from the film," and you have you'll and even though we, you know, it's not entirely visual, so you can be listening to it. It helps, you know, to give the audience a chance to play along. If there's nothing like that, we can pick from one of the ones that we can do. Maybe maybe the one that's easiest to kind of um, explain to the to the listeners, I guess. Okay, I'm on Reddit, and Reddit, Reddit is usually reliable. Oh, found one. Oh, excellent. Now we're sucking diesel. Yep, it's <laughs> called Themedle. This might be quite hard, though, because there will be, this could be from any film ever, but you ready to try it? Let's, the... let's, let's give it a go. If, if not, we can, we can decide if there's a better one. We can always describe what we're looking at, do you know what I mean? Okay, here we go. So basically the way this thing works is that you get about a second, then you get two seconds, and then it looks like you get three, then four, then five. So you get six guesses. Yeah. Sometimes these ones are really hard. So I'm going to play in three, two, one. Is that Airwolf? You're joking. So I'm, okay. I'm, obviously, so gonna have an, typed... I'm obviously going to have an enormous time-bound advantage to anything from the 80s because you weren't born then. But So the I've typed in Airwolf and there's American Werewolf in London and Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, so I don't think it's that. Oh, no. Okay. But I'll submit it and then we get the next. Yeah. We get an extended thing. So... Yeah, that's Airwolf. It's all one word, A-I-R-W-O-L-F. It's not coming up as an option, mate. What film's it from? It's a TV show. <laughs> Maybe it's just something that sounds very like it, and I've been completely caught out, and now in my head I can't hear anything but Airwolf. <laughs> what film could that be from? You've seen every film ever. Come on. Do they give us any more? I can I can put in Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf for no, a laugh. No, it won't be <laughs> and that. Now we've, now we've got... It, it's a, All I can hear is Airwolf. It, the, the rest of the thing goes... It's got to be from like some stupid film. Do you reckon it's from like Total Recall back in the 80s? Or from it's not like... Total Recall. It could be... Oh, what the hell could it be? Because um, I reckon that's just the same thing over and over no, again. No, I'm lost. I'm lost. I've, I've given up. If my guess that Airwolf doesn't count, I'm, I, I'm now earwormed into what's a, apparently the wrong answer. Does it tell you at the end? Yeah. Okay, well, let's see. Let's just play it. Unless you've got a guess, let's just play it out. No. I can just skip the whole thing and it'll tell us. That's definitely Airwolf, unless it's called something else in another territory. 
Yeah. Just have Doesn't to even tell me. <laughs> it just has a picture of a helicopter. It's definitely Airwolf. It's Airwolf. Unless I'm misremembering the title, it's Jan Michael Vincent, Ernest Borgnine, and the bloke with the um Yeah, all one word Airwolf. I think we picked the one day when it's completely bugged because all listeners of a certain age will be agreeing that it's Airwolf. Airwolf full extended theme Epsilon process. So it is uh, Airwolf. On on my life, I typed in yeah. uh, Airwolf, and it just came up with Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? <laughs> I, think, I think for the benefit of the audience, they were able to hear it, and therefore we got um, we got some Airwolf in there. So that's very... Yeah, we can we can try another one next time, but I think that was quite fun, mate. We can try that. Yeah, and then I, I'll, I'll send you the other ones, or we can yeah, put yeah. links in the, the post when we put this podcast yeah, out. Yeah, what people the, think, yeah. Because they're, they're so much fun. Like, I think the one today might be Saving Private Ryan. The ones... The ones that, that you've been talking about the things that you that you put out I remember you shared one with me the thing that annoys me is after I've done one I'm like oh right I want to do another one and it says no you can have your next one tomorrow says, I can't wait until tomorrow well, see to be fair see the poster doll and the movie doll these are really hard to say the poster one you can do you can go back to like whenever they started doing it and go back oh right them. so you can go back oh, I have to remember um, that and then the actor role is like an actual app you can get and you can do you can do the daily challenge or you can do um, just ch- jumping in and out yeah Okay. So, yeah, that was fun, mate. That was good. Yeah, we can try another one. There's also, I was thinking something, this might be an occasional feature if anyone writes in with it, um, to, to beat the nerds that, we, you know, a listener could write in with a, a trivia question and we promise not to Google it and see if we can answer it. And if, if we can't answer it, then they've beaten the nerds and they've got all the bragging rights. But uh, I like, I like <laughs> that's an occasional one. I think every month we can do that. That uh, Yeah, just ask the listeners to send yeah, them yeah. in. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, all right. So um, we've got a little like nerd out, nerd out feature, see if we can guess the movie. So guessing the movie or guessing the, the theme, that was very good. Yeah, that was, thanks for that, mate. No worries. Okay, so just a little bit of a refresh, a little um, amuse-bouche for the audience there. Now we can get to an, our next part of the roundup, which is always about the new films that are coming out. Um, what's caught your eye about the new releases, mate? New releases? So um, I'm very excited for the new Thor film. Yeah, I knew you were going to go straight for Thor Love and Thunder. Jurassic Park film or Jurassic World films getting panned, rightly so. Yeah. Top Gun Maverick. People who like the original, they're liking the new one. But if you're not into Top Gun, apparently it's just another film. I think you'll enjoy it if you like um, like air combat scenes. Yeah, that it's got kind plenty of, of that. Um, but it um, does it does rely quite heavily on the old film. And then what else? Did I, is there something that really caught my eye? I'll tell you what caught my eye. I wonder if it would caught yours as well. It's it's Hustle. It's a new Adam Sandler film, which is on yes. limit. It's on a limited release, which you might already have missed by the time that it's this episode comes out. And then it's on Netflix. Oh. Um, so it, what you 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 could see it in selected cinemas for a very brief period, and now it's on Netflix. It's getting very good reviews, and it looks like it's another one of his um, sort of credible side projects that he does, like Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love and that thing with the shoemaker or the candlestick or whatever that one was called. Um, so, yeah, and he's getting rave reviews, isn't it? He's really into his basketball, so there's obviously some... He's into his sports, isn't yeah, it's he? Quite, he loves it's quite his a personal, basketball, he loves quite, his football, yeah, or so this American is quite, football. It's clearly a personal one for him, which is getting very good reviews. So um, I'm going to go through a quick list of stuff that's sort of slated to come out. These things can be a bit inaccurate because some films are getting very late um, notification of, of their release dates, like Everything Everywhere All at Once did last month. But uh, 1st of July, so you know, going from after this episode comes out, 1st of July, Minions, The Rise of Gru, that another prequel. I think they might have um, uh, exhausted that one now. Um, there's a film called Tigers. It's the true story of a, a Scandinavian football called Martin Bengtsson and his struggles as a rookie player signed by Inter Milan. 
Um, this was made in 2020. It's been delayed presumably by COVID, but that's out. I think it's a bit of an independent film, but it's a true story. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, and Joyride, which is a, a drama, might be a comedy drama starring Olivia Colman. It's um, uh, about a, a woman who's giving up her child for adoption and goes on a bit of a road trip. So the tone of that, it doesn't, you can't tell from looking it up what kind of tone they've chosen for that movie, but she's always watchable. Uh, 8th of July, Thor Love and Thunder comes out that you've, you've described. Yes. There's um, yeah, all sorts going in there. I mean, the the Marvels have been a bit hit and miss lately. So this is there's a bit riding on this one to actually sort of get, you know, drag everyone up a level with that. I mean, Taika Waititi is usually very good. So hopefully that one is going to be good. Um, apparently they've had to CGI the hell out of um, uh, Natalie Portman to make it look like she can hold that hammer. Um, <laughs> that Can they not just make a lighter hammer? <laughs> no, it's the thing is, it's not about the hammer being lighter. It's that she's got spindly little stick arms. You know, it's not like um, oh, they've given her guns. Yeah, she's on the juice. You see, I mean, you, see, you don't have to be massive. I mean, Scarlett Johansson and Brie Larson aren't sort of you know they don't you know they couldn't they couldn't do WWE or anything, but they they managed to look athletic and, and bulk up. But Natalie Portman is so sort of slender that they've had to use CGI to make her look like the female version of Thor that she's turned into. Um, also, also coming out the same day as that, Brian and Charles, which is a British indie comedy about a lonely man who builds a robot to keep him company. Um, Hit the Road, which is an Iranian road movie, which uh, uh, is getting rave reviews. Tenth uh, of July, um, Rumble uh, comes out. It's a kids' animation about monsters who are sort of sports fight champions of some some type. See what that's like. Uh, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. It's a British comedy with Leslie Manville and Jason Isaacs. I um, mean, they're always good. Um, Akiara, uh, an Italian drama about a family who get abandoned by their father in Calabria. Uh, and The Railway Children Returned, which is a 50 years belated sequel to um, uh, Jenny Agatha's sort of early, one of her earliest films, The Railway Children. I, I, I wonder why they suddenly decided they needed to do a sequel to that. Uh, and then 22nd of July, uh, Nope is coming out, Jordan Peele's new horror film. Um, what is that again? I saw the trailer for it, but it looks absolutely like I could get the theme with Get Out. I could kind of understand, but that I have no idea what's going on. I think it's it's a little. It's I think it's meant to be a little bit mysterious. What it's about? I know Daniel Kaluuya's in it, and I know there's an element of it's some sort of cloud or mysterious horror threat that's kind of enveloping them that he's got to fight. Um, and other than that, I've tried to not find out about it. If you see what I mean, okay, because right, I, I, right. I'm, you know what it's like. I, I don't want the, I don't want trailers or anything to spoil it. Um, so yeah, we're always interested in Jordan Peele's new film. Um, uh, Beautiful Blue Eyes is coming out. This is a bit of an odd one because this was Roy Scheider's last film. It came out in two thousand and nine, and they've re-edited it, cut thirty minutes off the running time, and re-released it. And I've got no idea. Maybe they felt like the, you know, the, the, they got it wrong, and that there's actually a better film in there, but. Couldn't tell you why this is coming out now. Um, and there's another streaming title, which is quite interesting. It's The Grey Man, which has got uh, Ryan Gosling in it. Um, isn't it Chris Evans in it as well? Um, that's a big that's a big one on streaming, not cinema, but I think it is going to be one of the bigger films of the year, so we'll see what happens there. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a few things coming out. I think we've settled down now to kind of a normal number of films coming out every month. There was this really, really busy period, wasn't there, with all the all the delayed COVID films all coming out at once, it kind of was. But that's uh, that's what's coming out. Fair bit of variety there, one or two big things. Um, apart from that, we start talking about the films that we've seen at the cinema ourselves. Um, so what have you seen at the cinema lately, mate? I have not been to the cinema. I know that's terrible and it will burn the witch. But <laughs> we are preparing to get a puppy. And I've just focused all my time on laying flooring in the house in case the puppy does a shite or a pish because I'd rather clean that up 
from laminate as opposed to old scabby carpets. So any films I have been watching have been from the comfort of my own sofa. No, that's fine. That's fine. Any humblest any, apologies. No, that's um, all right. Any new any new sort of releases or twenty twenty two stream films you've streamed this uh, this month? What did we watch? We started watching The Legend of Tammy Fee. Oh right, the um the Jessica Chastain thing that she yeah, won the Oscar w- for. It's quite. I find it quite shit. I said, I was watching it with the missus, and she she was really keen to watch it, and I was like, "This is shit. This is not very good." Um, yeah, I think I said. She said, "I don't get it." She was her problem was like she didn't know who she was. So like, if you yeah. I feel like if you don't know who that person is, that's not going to be that interesting to you. She never made a a massive splash over here. This like evangelical phenomenon is Never much more does, of an American thing than a British thing but she was someone that you if if you paid vague attention to what was going on in, in America you'd get like references like if you were watching American shows or American comedy in like the 80s or 90s you'd get references to Tammy Faye and her husband but it, it's never been a huge thing over here and maybe it's one of those films that depends on the audience actually already having some history with the character there is a problem with these biopics as well that if they're just a vehicle for an actor to to give a you know award-winning performance you can sometimes go well i'm you know jessica chastain's done a terrific job but i'm not sure what the rest of the film is there for kind of thing maybe it's that yeah well the reason we put it on was that we just watched hacksaw ridge we watched that this month and she'd never seen it before and andrew garfield's also in the legend of tammy faye and hacksaw ridge is based on a true story as well hacksaw ridge is a brilliant film um, Mel Gibson is so good at action, isn't he? Uh, yeah, she, I mean, she wasn't too keen on the whole bit where it, you know, pure kicks off, but the whole story of it is just mm-hmm. immense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we put that on. I think if we gave it a watch another time, because I've got to be quite careful with watching films with Mrs. because she's not a big film person. So if she watches a film, it means that I can't overload her with films. So the film A has to be good, and then B don't overload so I've got to pick and choose my right time so I think uh-huh. the problem with that is that we just watched Hacksaw Ridge like the night before and she needs a couple of days to just kind of recover yeah, so decompress yeah um yeah that's fair enough I mean I, I know I know I know what that's like not everyone wants to watch a film as often as I want to watch a film kind of thing is it yeah it's, it's just one of those things um sure. Netflix I've added a lot of stuff to my list that um hustle is something I'm going to get around to watching yeah me too I'm going to try uh, and watch that next month and then um yeah. So I have watched a couple of things at the cinema. Um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, which I mentioned on the last episode. It actually came out before um, we, we went to air with the last episode, um, but it was released so late, or well, it got its release date so late that it kind of went, oh shit, that's out. Um, so this is the other multiverse movie that's coming out. It's kind of like the more independent, you know, lower budget kind of counter-programming uh, to uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. The word of mouth on it was so enthusiastic, and it stars Michelle Yeoh, so it was a no-brainer I'm watching that. Do you know what I mean? Do you remember I said about um, uh, Shang-Chi and the, the the Legend of the Ten Rings that my, one of my main criticisms was Michelle Yeoh's only in it for like 10 minutes, where I'd have liked to have seen her in it more, because um, she's tremendous. And this is Michelle Yeoh carrying a movie, so I'm, I'm all in. Um, so it's about the multiverse, but different rules. It's also done as a kind of action comedy, but it's also kind of family character-driven drama as well. It stars right. Michelle Yeoh as like a hard-pressed small business owner whose life hasn't turned out like she hoped. She could have been more, but now she runs a laundrette, and she's a very prickly, difficult character. Her business is about to undergo a tax audit from Jamie Lee Curtis, who's the local tax person. She's like starts out as the villain <laughs> antagonist of the piece, and everything goes mad, and it... It ends up in various different ways. Her husband, long-suffering husband, who's you know 
her main support, but she doesn't act like she appreciates him. And he's about to file for divorce and she's got personal problems with her daughter. So you got all this kind of, it's like she's someone with a fucking lot on her plate. Do you know what I mean? She's that character. It's like she's got so much going on. And now it gets even worse because now she starts to become aware that there's uh, parallel worlds where a version of her exists in all these different worlds, you know, in, in each of these different universes. The rules are different to Doctor Strange because in Doctor Strange, it, you have to have the ability to travel between multiverses, right? And you physically leave this multiverse and end up in that one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas in this one, it's about your in your head, you can sort of jump into the head of the version of you who's in that universe. Do you know what I mean? Right. So you, when that's happening, you just you're just sitting like a like a, a a lifeless doll in your reality, and you're actually at the controls of the version of you in another universe. So it's like your consciousness hops from multiverse to multiverse. But what happens is, she. Or to her, all of these multiverses are happening at once. So it plays out very differently to Doctor Strange. The other thing that was, it's actually much better than Doctor Strange is in Doctor Strange, my big, biggest complaint was they just hopped, oh, look, it's, it's a universe like this, like for a split second, and then another one, another Didn't one. show all of it, yeah. And then, and then the rest of the time, it's like, oh, this is just a multiverse where um, him out of the office is uh, is Mr. Fantastic, and, and they've got a different version of, of, of Captain America. Great. Um, but and, and it was just... they didn't do enough with the idea well in this she her, her character starts to feel aware of everything that's going on in all of those universes at the same time and her mind's gonna gonna blow out and also it really explores some of these other multiverses there's a couple of brilliant ones where essentially everyone is a rock rocks with kind of mental consciousnesses but they can't do anything because they can't move um, um, cool. yeah yeah kind of like leader around here exactly and there's another one where everyone's got hot dogs for fingers <laughs> And and there's all sorts of different things going on, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's much more inventive. I mean, it's played more for laughs than uh, the new Doctor Strange film, but um, I really enjoyed it. It's too long. Some of it could have been cut out, but it's really great stuff. And for one eighth of the cost of Doctor Strange two, you get so many more ideas and a lot more entertainment value. I really recommend it because the the way the story plays out, it's the multiverse isn't just a, oh look, it's a different version of this, and they're going to hop to that, and it's actually. They managed to balance really nicely this strange, wild, crazy multiverse idea that they really give you so lots of weird worlds to kind of enjoy. But at the heart of it, Michelle Yeoh is a person dealing with a lot of shit, and how is she going to, you know, how is she going to resolve all 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 of her family's issues? Uh, and Jamie Lee Curtis is great. Her husband is played by Jonathan K. Hahn, who was in the uh, Indiana Jones and the Goonies back in the day. This is great to see him back. Um, great fun. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's. It's just, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's just a better multiverse film. Jamie Lee Curtis went on social media going, look, if you want to watch a good multiverse film, come and see ours. And she's absolutely right. Doctor Strange is a bit disposable. And this is this was really good. Um, yeah. The other one I went to see was Top Gun Maverick. Um, exactly like you said, mate. It did exactly what it said on the tin. It's it's the ideal sequel to the, the original Top Gun if you wanted one. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know what your history is with Top Gun. I mean, it's an it's a so such an eighties film. I don't know if that means yeah, anything to any of your generation. I think no. I think I love a good kind of war military type film. I know Top Gun's sort of like that, but it's also very like the bromance of it all. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of bravado. Um, but I think I watched it, you know, twenty five years after it came out. So for me, it wasn't 
that explosive and epic and like there are film like i've watched like all the star wars films which have cooler kind of dogfight scenes in them than the original top uh top gun they were very they're very cutting edge so, at the time and, and yeah, obviously but, tony scott had, had a, an amazing style but at the end of the day it's it is absolutely stuck in the 80s i think i'll catch it i wouldn't pay money to go to the cinema but i'll catch it when it comes out just because tom cruise is on a really hot streak of good films at the moment mm-hmm um, I don't, when's the last time he made a bad film? Probably that shit one with Cameron Diaz, like twelve years ago. He's kind of decided what works for him. He and, knows and what he wants. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, yeah, I'll probably catch it. I, I, just a little side note: I'm obviously coming down at the end of the month. The only, <laughs> the only films that are really released and going to be out at that point are Elvis, the Baz Luhrmann film, which will yeah. not be receiving any of our money. Yeah. Because Baz Luhrmann can go and fuck himself. So I'm a bit gutted that there's nothing good out because Thor doesn't come out till yeah, yeah. the 8th and we're back up to Scotland. We'll just have to see. That. We'll have to see if there's anything out that catches our eye at the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so with Top Gun Maverick, it, this, what this film does really well is that it, it treads quite a fine line of, of what, what do people want from a sequel 35 years after the last one? And, and and is that going to work? Because it, it doesn't have the top, over-the-top, cheesy 80s-style overload of Tony Scott's original. And that's kind of better and worse, because on the one hand, a lot of what was fun about the last Top Gun film was it was fucking ridiculous, do you know what I mean? And if, if you tried to do that now, it would be weird. Uh, the whole thing is a bit sort of older and wiser, because Tom Cruise's character is 30 years older, so it makes sense for it, for him to be older and wiser. Um, but it does the job in terms of story. It hits all the beats. It's got this isn't the spoiler because it's been discussed very widely. Miles Teller plays the son of Goose, Tom Cruise's best friend from the first film. So that creates like an emotional kind of uh, sort of uh, load for the film. The flight sequences are fantastic. Miles Teller is very good. He actually looks like he could carry a big film on his own in the future. Um, for someone like me, it was quite fun to see a big tip of the hat to the right stuff um, because at the start of the film, Tom Cruise's character is a test pilot and there's a whole sequence that plays off um, that movie, The Right Stuff, which is about um, the early test pilots and the start of the space program. So that was a lot of fun. It's, I think it's, it's, it, it is more for people who remember and, and were fond of the original film, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's what you want from a blockbuster and Tom Cruise is, is good as always. So yeah, it's worth it, worth seeing. Uh, and the other thing I saw just quickly, this is a, a this is a newish film. It came out earlier in the year, and this was on streaming. It's Apollo Ten and a Half, a Space Age Childhood. I don't know if you've heard about this. I have not. So Richard Linklater, um, who we've watched a few films of, he's done a, a range of things like those before films, and you know his kind of slacker comedies like um, School of Rock and uh, Dazed and Confused and all of that stuff. Um, uh, this is sort of like so, this is an animated film, rotoscoped animation, where he kind of animates over live action uh, that he's filmed with actual actors in it, and then he animates around them, like uh, a Scanner Darkly, which was the first, um, sorry, the second uh, hidden gem that was ever done on this podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's part, it's set in 1969, and it's part fantasy about a kid kind of imagining that he went on a moon mission himself. The idea being that they've built everything just slightly too small and you know they're really pissed off with the with the contractors that have done that but they don't want to waste it they want to see it they want to do it as like a test run for the real thing so before neil armstrong's mission they send up a kid because he's the only one who fits in the capsule to the moon um and it's just a way of telling the story of the moon mission from a kid's point of view it, so it's partly telling the story of the apollo missions and the wider social context around it like all the upheaval that was going on in america at the time and the 
the atmosphere of the time, like everyone was suddenly optimistic, because when you can put a man on the moon, you start to imagine that we'll all be living on Mars in 50 years. It was that kind of period where anything seemed possible. And it's also got some really great details. It's like a memoir of his childhood and growing up in the suburbs in, in, you know, around Houston in Texas. It's really fun. It's really good. I mean, it might be more for, for an, an older audience, but I thought it was a really nice kind of memoir of childhood combined with really interesting kind of look at the space program. And it looks it looks beautiful. Um, it's, it's another film that actually has links to the right stuff because it follows on from the right stuff in, in a way in the story that it tells. That's, that's on Netflix, and that's, uh, that's, worth, that's worth an hour and a half of your time as well. So, oh, give that a wee watch, yeah, yeah, sorry. very good. Um, so, now in turn, we always now turn to our resolutions. What we promised we were going to do this year. Now, yours was to watch more films. You've kind of gone into that. I've already discussed else? that. Yeah, no, yeah, no. So um, you've, like you've, you've, you've watched a few. Films. Yeah, you've watched a few, and you're um, looking to, you know, uh, maybe do more when you haven't got, got quite so much on at home. But yeah, I think I think you fulfilled your resolution. Um, my resolution for for this year was to to do another film project like the Carpenter one I did last year. Uh, and this year I'm doing uh, 2022, A Kubrick Odyssey, where each month I watch one of Kubrick's films, which having done, sort of sneaked in his first two shorter films in January, it means I'm actually going to be able to do all of his films in, in one project. Uh, so each month, I, you know, as, as we progress along, we're progressing along the curve of um, Kubrick's career. This takes us to 1964 and Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Now, <clears throat> After Paths of Gloria, this is Kubrick's second true classic of his career, and I think it's if people were going to talk about which are Kubrick's best films, this is definitely in the conversation. Um, you've seen, have you seen, you've seen Doctor Strange Love, haven't you? Yeah, I've seen Doctor Strange Love. What did you think? It's absolutely barmy, and that's what I love about it. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting from your point of view because obviously you were born after the Cold War was over, and although there is still a nuclear threat because there's nuclear missiles dotted around the world, and always a few lunatics trying to do shit. I don't think you have you you really have much kind of memory of that kind of Cold War kind of paranoia that was going on at the time. It, this is something that uh, your your interest in history you probably know about it, but you know you, yeah. don't, you don't have a lived experience. Yeah, I've on never it had that kind of that kind of paranoia. Even with the war in Ukraine and Russia, I've never had that kind of that paranoia. The closest like kind of paranoia of the world ending was probably like the kind of COVID pandemic where yeah, we yeah. basically forced to stay inside. So I've never had the kind of experience that you went yeah, through yeah. when you were a similar age, I suppose. I mean, there are some parallels um, to that, which we'll come back to the whole COVID thing. But yeah, I mean, my, my experience of this is in the 80s, we were still very much sort of in a sort of period of fear about the Cold War. And there were films in the 80s that came out like, imagining what nuclear war would be like. So it was definitely a thing. This is the 60s version of, it, of that. Now, in it, an Air Force commander called General Jack D. Ripper has gone mad. He believes the Soviets are plotting to control the free world by putting fluoride in the water. He's orders his planes to launch a nuclear attack on Russia. He's convinced his men that anyone trying to stop them, even other military personnel, are communists plotting to overthrow America. So they prepare to fight to the, to the death to stop the attack being called off. In the war room of the U.S. government, the U.S. president and his generals and advisors, led by the excellent George C. Scott, flap around trying to call off the attack, uh, and when it looks like it might fail, start to try and rationalise it and pretend they can win the atomic war with only a few million casualties. Meanwhile, the Russians have set up a doomsday device that will automatically destroy the whole planet if they are attacked, so they have to find a way to call the whole thing off, but one of the planes and their crew are determined to reach their target. Now, this was based on a 1958 novel called Red Alert, which is much more serious in tone. This whole thing is a great example of that Cold War fear of nuclear destruction, which we talked about at the top of this, um, and concern about the arms race. 
Um, all of this intensified and became even more relevant after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, where the standoff between the USA and the Soviet Union came very, very close to nuclear war. And one of the things about that is, until, I don't know if you know this, mate, I know you're pretty hot on your history, but until uh, 1962, until, until after the Cuban Missile Crisis, there wasn't a hotline between Moscow and, and, and Washington, D.C., so that yeah. the president or the leaders of each country couldn't pick up the phone to each other and say, right, we need Pat to talk. Yeah, fucking dumb. Yeah. They, 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 so the, the, the opportunity for a misunderstanding was fucking enormous. Um, the whole thing was intended <laughs> to serve as a warning, and we must be careful. The various political and military leaders of both countries need to ensure that safeguards exist around nuclear weapons, that careful dialogue between heads of state, sound processes and decision-making be applied at all times to avoid the dis extinction of the human race. Kubrick takes an exurbic look at all of this and the idea of the human race actually being able to organise things and make sure disasters don't happen and he laughs bitterly and says we're all fucked. So that's his whole world to, to, to this. Um, he takes a more serious subject and finds a way of telling the story which is far more uh, comic and farcical in tone. He's essentially laughing at how ridiculous it all is. Um, stuff like um, uh, General Ripper's ob obsession with essential bodily fluids and things like that. It's, it's you know, the name's Jack D. Ripper. It's beautiful. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. And he realises that doing this as a black comedy is the best way to tell this story. Um, the initial drafts of, of, the, of the film had the same serious tone, um, but Kubrick was working on it and he found so much detail about the story, the procedures, and the attitudes of the military and government were ridiculous. And he was going, I'm leaving the best things out of this story to try and keep the serious tone. So he said, no, 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 let's actually make this farcical. Let's actually show how farcical all of this is, this whole idea of a nuclear deterrent just sitting there threatening to destroy us all. Um, so he brought in a satirical writer called Terry Southern and helped write it that way, and a classic was born. The characters in the film are variously crazy, hapless, deluded, or just stuck in their mentality and refusing to acknowledge how insane the whole idea of a nuclear deterrent is. Anything which undermines their worldview can be dismissed as a communist plot. Um, the actual Doctor Strangelove character that's in the title was invented for the film. There's no such character in the uh, in the. Uh, in the original book. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is another film came out the same year called Failsafe. I don't know if you're aware of that, mate. No, no. Sorry. S same story, but done much more seriously. Okay. Um, and uh, what happened there was that um, both films were being developed and it looked like Failsafe had been nicked in a number of ways from the original book. How much of that I, is true, I don't know. It's obviously after the Cuban Missile Crisis, this became a, we should do a story about the possibility of nuclear war destroying us all and what would we do if it happened. I think it's natural that more than one story would be out at the time. But Kubrick was very keen to make sure that his thunder wasn't stolen. So he successfully sued the makers of the other film, um, not to stop that film being made, but just to make sure it wasn't allowed to come out until some time after Dr. Strangelove. So they had a clear run at the box office. And when Failsafe came out eight months later, it's actually a decent film. It's got Henry Fonda in it, um, much more serious in tone. But that film got good reviews, but not as good as the box office because everyone went, well, I've seen this. I've seen this movie. And Kubrick, you know, he fought really hard to make sure that his film got, you know, the, the, main, the main view of the audience. As I said, the tone is extremely satirical. You know, you've got a character called Jack D. Ripper. You've got um, a guy whose surname is Guano. This, the president's called Merkin Muffley, and the, the main um, uh, pilot is called Kong. Um, I don't know if you know, you, you, I don't know how many times you watch me, but there's a very early role for J James Earl Jones in the bomber plane. Oh, yes. 
um, which is quite fun to watch. Because he's such a voice actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this film's got a very modern style, I thought. I don't know what you thought, mate, compared to the other films of the era. I mean, it looks like a 60s film, but actually, compared to the other films that are made at that time, it's got a lot more of the film techniques which are now commonplace. I think Kubrick was really kind of reinventing the way we make films. If you see this, there's a very documentary style <clears throat> um, battle scene at the base, the, 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 the shots and the close-ups and the way it's filmed. It, it's, it's ahead of its time, for sure. Um, <clears throat> other, other bits of trivia that, that I like was um, George C. Scott, um, who plays one of the president's generals who's trying to call this off. Um, he's brilliant in this film. At the time, he was annoyed at the kind of overacting that Kubrick seemed to be demanding from him. Every time he did it, Kubrick would go, no, I want more, I want a bigger performance. And George Hussot was going, this is, this is shit, I'm, this, you're going to make me look like I'm overacting the whole way through. And then he saw the final film and realised it was actually one of his best performances. So it's like he kind of respected how Kubrick was really... Kubrick had something in mind for his performance and got it, which is really interesting. Um, it's also a given that this is about exploring the career of Kubrick it tells you a lot about the way he works with actors I don't think Kubrick did this all the time but one of the things about Kubrick is that while he's very meticulous and has a very clear idea of film he wants to make he has he take he does lots and lots of takes and in this film you realize he actually gives the actors quite a lot of opportunities to make the film they want to make even though Kubrick is the one in control he um you know, compare him to, to Hitchcock. Hitchcock wouldn't deviate from his original script and storyboards. But in this, Kubrick knew that Sellers, Peter Sellers' great strength was improvisation. So he allowed Sellers to improvise so much that they almost had to give Peter Sellers script credit because he invented so many lines and so many things for the, for the script with his improvisations. Um, <clears throat> there's another great bit. Again, I don't know if you remember this in the film. There's a bit where George C. Scott is walking around chasing after the president in the war room, trying to talk him into doing something. And he falls over and just keeps talking. Do you remember that bit? Basically, George E. Scott falls over, does a forward roll, and just carries on talking without a pause. I yeah, don't remember but, that yeah, bit. Yeah, like missing a beat, yeah. That was an accident. George C. Scott didn't mean to do it, but the thing is, because he's a pro, he always says, you know, it's like a footballer who always plays to the whistle. George C. Scott carries on going until someone yells cut. So he did it, he fell over, and he thought, well, I've better got to carry on talking, so he just carried on doing it. Kubrick thought George C. Scott had done it on purpose, quite liked it, and left it in. So this film's quite interesting to see that although it's a comedy, and comedies actually have to be quite tightly controlled to work, and Kubrick is like one of the most tightly controlled directors of all time, it's very interesting how much room he gave his actors to actually do their thing. So that's really good. Um, I'll tell you something else about you know Kubrick and, and, and actors is that Peter Sellers' fee was half the budget for this film. Jeez. <clears throat> so, it, you know, and he's playing like three parts as well. Um, he was almost pl going to play four parts. He was meant to play the pilot as well, but he injured himself and couldn't do it. So they got in uh, Slim Pickens to do that big cowboy character, which is really good. Um, it was critically acclaimed. The audiences loved it. It's a big hit. It did nearly $10 million against a $1 million budget, which is big money back then in 1964. Um, it's, it's one of the biggest films that he did in sort of, if you you know it, compare it to the year that it was in, it was, um, it was number 12... All, out of all films in the US that year so it's not quite in the top 10 but if you actually look at the numbers in the charts there's a top 5 for that year which is James Bond My Fair Lady Mary Poppins some of these big blockbusters and they're all doing like 25 or more million dollars in a huge every every other film below that is doing 10-12 million dollars max so apart from the James Bond films basically and the musicals Doctor Strange was like one of the biggest films of the year um, sadly um, it was knocked out at the Oscars by My Fair Lady because um, the Academy loves a musical. My Fellow is a terrific film, but, yeah. you know, it's like, um, 
It, My Fair Lady won Best Picture ahead of Doctor Strangelove. It's director George Cukor won Best Director ahead of Kubrick. And Rex Harrison, who you can't even sing, won Best Actor ahead of Peter Sellers, who, who was at <laughs> least nominated for Best Actor, but um, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't win. Um, although it's great that Peter Sellers, who was a comedy actor, and they don't often get the credit they deserve. He was nominated for an Oscar and for his acting. And I think Peter Sellers got taken very seriously after this. Um, Probably the most interesting thing about, well, you know, the thing I really like about this film is it, it, it marked kind of the end of the old order and it kind of started off the 60s, right? Um, there's a guy in The Guardian called John Patterson who wrote afterwards, there had been nothing in comedy like Dr. Strangelove ever before. All the gods before whom the America of the stolid, paranoid 50s had genuflected, the bomb, the Pentagon, the national security state, the president himself, Texan masculinity and the uh, uh, alleged commie menace, it went into the wood chipper and never got the same respect ever again. So this kind of started people going, you know what, these are sacred cows? Fuck you, I'm killing them all off. So Kubrick kind of really, was really influential. He's really leading the 60s out with this film because he absolutely rips the whole kind of idea to, bit, to, to bits. Pete Sellers makes this phone call to the Russian president and the Russian president's drunk and it's like, hi, Dimitri, are you okay? You know how, do, how do you think I feel about it? It's so funny playing these lovely little details. The Nazi rocket scientist going mad in the war room and trying, you know, to have to stop it. One of his hands seems to be operating with a mind of its own. Slim Pickens riding the missile down to its target like a rodeo bull. Um, even at the end, they can't stop fighting a cold war. Even as they talk about how they're going to have to live in bunkers for 100 years, they start saying, well, we better have bunkers than the Russians. We don't want to lose the bunker race. It's amazing. Um, and, and Peter Sellers, he's great in this because he plays three very different characters. And although Dr. Strangelove is this big, mad character, the, the RA officer he plays is very nuanced. The president is very good. Um, but everyone remembers Dr. Strangelove going bonkers. He starts calling the president my Fuhrer and, he, and one, of his, one of his hands can't be controlled. Um, where does this sit for you with Kubrick films, mate? Is this one of your favourites? Oh, Of the I ones you've seen? No, I really do like The Shining. Yeah. I really do like The Shining. I would, mm. And the problem I have is is that I would say Full Metal Jacket, but Full Metal Jacket's only good for the first hour, and then they go to Vietnam, and it's shit. It's, it in is. Opinion, it's it's, in, it's interesting. Um, if, if Kubrick had stuck to his guns and just done a movie about being trained for Vietnam, he might have actually made a, the greatest oh, Vietnam film. Yeah. Because um, um, I think it was it was too... I mean, we'll, we'll obviously, we will get to Full Metal Jacket towards towards the end of this year, but it, I, I think it was a tall order filming of Vietnam battle in, in the London Docklands. And a lot of it was kind of... I mean, that, I mean it, it is, to be fair to it, the only film that's set in, in that more urban war. Most of the other Vietnam films are all set in the jungle, so it does have that going for it. But yeah, I agree with you. I kind of prefer the first half of that. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favourites. It's it's just perfect. I mean, it's just absolutely spot on. It's a comedy about how we're all going to die, which is what I was going to say with, like, COVID. And you remember Don't Look Up came out, and that was kind of the same idea that, that there's a disaster and humanity isn't going to escape disaster because we're all idiots. It's that, and, and, and thing with COVID, it's like, if you look at COVID, it's like, well, we can stop this being as bad as it is. If everyone pulls together and the people in charge are intelligent and do the right thing, oh shit, we're fucked. It's that same mentality. And Kubrick, Kubrick just looks at that and laughs. He goes, yeah, we're fucked, aren't we? And and, and laughs at it. It's brilliant, hmm. brilliant. <laughs> and he probably did a lot to kind of, while it's a, a comedy film, he probably did quite a lot to change attitudes. So yeah, so that's the yeah that's the Kubrick entry for this month, and it as always I like to see if I can get these Kubrick films to inspire an impromptu top ten. Uh, and for this month, what I've decided to do uh, is a top ten of films featuring actors playing multiple roles. Um, Norbit. Eddie Murphy does feature in this list, but it's not Norbit. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jack and Jill. So, in, in the impromptu top ten of films featuring actors playing multiple roles in no particular order, Eddie Murphy in Coming to America, uh, Michael Palin in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I mean, all the Python guys. Everyone in Monty Python. <laughs> but but Michael Palin does the most. Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future Part Two, even playing his own teenage daughter. Um, Alec Guinness in Kind Hearts and Coronets, who's kind of the original gangster of this uh, of this kind of idea. Uh, Lily Tomlin in The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, Deborah Carr in The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. James Remar in Django Unchained, which was uh, a nice little uh, Tarantino touch there. Mel Brooks in The History of the World Part 1. Uh, Nicolas Cage in Adaptation. And Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers. I've, apart from those last two, I've sort of resisted films where people play twins, because that's kind of a genre in its own right. But Nick Cage and Jeremy Irons are so good in those films, I think I thought they deserved to be on this list. So what you're telling me is, is that Norbert and Jack and Jill don't make the list? They do not make the list. What the fuck is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the impromptu top 10 for this month, and that's the roundup for this month. Unless you've got anything else to add, mate? No. I can't think of anything. Very good. Of justice. Very good. Next month, the Kubrick country is going to be 2001 A Space Odyssey, so we're in serious sort of Kubrick incomplete control territory and uh, changing the world. We're already in 2001, and we're in July. Well, that's right, yeah. For July. That's, why. that's right, yeah. Already in the second half. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from near the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from film noir milestone The Big Sleep to the hugely controversial Straw Dogs. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations of your own there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we're discussing a film which intrigued me when it came out more than 25 years ago with its promise of dark surreal fantasy but which I never quite got around to watching. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 26 is Caro and Jeunet's The City of Lost Children. So I don't know if you have any uh, history or sort of relationship to this film mate. No, I'd never heard of it. Um, I mean, you, you, I mean, Mark Caro, who the co-director of this film, he's he, he's most well known for the stuff he did with Jeunet, but Jeunet's sort of more well known, I think, for Amelie in the first place and his rather unfortunate involvement in uh, Alien Resurrection. I assume you've seen Amelie, right? Yeah, uh, the Audrey tattoo thing. Yeah, yeah, ages ago. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, so that's that's who these people are. Caro is like. A, it's 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 a weird one because the, the the co-direction relationship we'll go into it's something that I think only happens in France or maybe only even happened with these two guys. Um, no, it's, no, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously one of our favourite films in Tushabla is two guys directing it. Yeah, yeah. I think I think those two guys directing it um, is more like like the Hughes brothers. That's a, and uh, that that is a bit more. I would say conventional that that Intouchable is directed by two guys who work together. Carol and Jeunet had specific different roles in the film, which we'll go into in more detail. For me, I've got a um, quite a complicated history with this film. When this came out in 1995, it was it wasn't shown hugely widely. It's kind of art house. It was being shown in a you know in a few places in London. I was working silly shifts in the job that I was doing. Just didn't get around to seeing it. But I remember reading the review and seeing the poster and going, oh, "I really like that. I really like the idea of that." Um, and it kind of stayed with me. I was really kind of not 
haunted is the wrong word. I was almost kind of, you know, entranced by the, the imagery of this film. I thought, I really want to get around to seeing that. Never got around to it. Never got around to renting it or, or buying the video. Um, and years and years pass. And one of the it's one of the films that inspired this entire feature. And in, in episode one of this, I talk about how I've got this list of films that I really need to get around to seeing. And I, I, I almost a mental block around this because this is weird. I was so so influenced by this film that I, that I I had dreamt about what kind of film it might be. Um, I'm the kind of person who does sort of have dreams about films, um, and I just thought I don't wonder what that's like. I'm, I'm, which kind of almost builds it up. It builds it up like, oh, what if I don't like it after all this? Do you know what I mean? And I just had this kind of bit of a mental block about sitting down to watch it. So when I sat down to watch this one, I go, God, I wonder what this is going to be like. I've thought for so long about what what this film's going to be like, and now I'm going to see it, which is it's not healthy, and I don't recommend doing it. <laughs> I try not to do it these days. By way of a plot summary, um, years before the actual start of the story of this film, a mad scientist living in an oil rig off the coast of kind of a strange, surrealist city um, created several clones of himself to keep him company in his in his loneliness uh, and sort of artificial creatures. And then he abandoned them for reasons that are not apparent at the start of the film, but you find out during them. One of them, Crank, is plagued by an inability to dream, which is making him age extremely rapidly. So he employs a sinister gang of cultists to steal children from the local city and bring them out to sea to his lair. And he puts them in a machine and steals their dreams. One of those children has a adoptive brother, played by uh, Ron Perlman as a strongman, who is um, determined to get his little brother back. Uh, and he and other sort of children and and uh, sort of odd and dispossessed characters from the city uh, start to clash with this kind of sinister gang that's operating in the town. Um, I just talked about the background that, that I didn't get to see it, but um, uh, having seen it now, it's kind of this rather surrealist kind of fantasy about dreams and a dark world. Uh, what did you think of it, mate? Um, it's quite, it's rather disturbing um, in a sense. It's a little, it's, the ideas of it are, it's it's a very bizarre film. It's definitely got some Terry Gilliam, Terry, what's his name? Terry Gilliam? Yeah. Am I saying that right, or is it Gillum? Have I just butchered? No, you, no, you, you got it right the first time. That's right? a horrible name for me to say. That guy, Terry Gilliam, his it's got very much, it's got very much his kind of, you know, bonkers kind of themes to it. But it, it's, I found it quite confusing. I, I, I would be lying, you know, if I said to you that I completely understood this film. Not, that, not saying that it was bad. I just think because it's throwing so much at you, and the plot is a little bit. Well, it is quite bizarre. It's it's not yeah. impossible to follow, but to to say that you followed the film, I would call you a liar. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I didn't completely follow it the first time. I sort of followed the main bits. Do you know what I mean? Okay, having read the kind of summary of what the film's about, and then there's a little narration that tells you why the mad professor is doing what he's doing. And then the way the story plays out, it's like, it was a bit. It is, what I, what I thought it was like, I mean, watching the first time is I followed it, to an extent, shall I say. And I think it's a very dreamlike film. Yeah. And I would contrast that, you know, Inception is all about dreams and living in dreams, but Inception is a, is a very lucid film about dreams. The people in the in the film, now notwithstanding there's a whole subplot to the Inception about what's a dream and what isn't and needing to know, large parts of, in, of Inception are, we are now in, you know, uh, Killian Murphy's dream, um, and now we've got to do something, and the people are aware of that they're in in someone else's unconscious, and and are, are have to act on it and, and do their little heist or their massive heist. In fact, with this, 
there's a whole dreamlike quality that says, I'm not sure if this whole film is a dream. I'm not sure if me watching this film is a dream. And I think it was intended to be quite trippy in that way. Um, yeah. I mean, I loved it. I think the, the visuals are a large part of, of why this film is as bizarre and kind of disturbing as it is. I mean, while the storyline itself is quite dark, it's quite dark in the style of a fairy tale. But the visuals, there's, it's very freakish. There's a lot of obsession with kind of, you know, rather strange looking characters. Ron Perlman is probably the most conventional looking person in this film. And he's usually the sort of oddest looking person in any film he's, he's a in. weird looking guy. Um, it's, they really went all out on, on the visuals. The, 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 the costumes are by Jean-Paul Gaultier. And, and we might as well do this now, what the direction style is. Essentially, Mark Carrow and, and Jean-Pierre Genet only made two full-length films like this. They worked together on a lot of animation together in like the 80s and stuff, and they went and decided to do their own films. There's one film called Delicatessen, which is another really super bizarre film. And then they did this, and they really caught people's imagination. And then they were invited to make the next Alien film. And Mark Carrow went, that's going to be a shit show. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and he, right he was. He was right. But Jean-Pierre Genet just really wanted the challenge of doing an Alien film. So he went to do it. And Mark Harrow helped design some sets for Alien Resurrection and then just left, right? So they only made two films in this style. It's a, it's quite, I think it is a unique way of working. Because if you see at the start of the film, they call, it's all in French, but you know, literally translated, Mark Harrow is the artistic director and, and Jean-Pierre Genet is the mise-en-scene. Which means Jean-Pierre Genet is working with the story and the actors, and Mark Harrow is directing the world around them. So if it's a if it's a visual piece, if it's the sets, if it's the design of the oil rig and any moving parts going in and out, then Caro's directing it, and Jean-Pierre Genet is directing the people living in the world. So really, what it is is that Jean-Pierre Genet's got this kind of fairy tale world or fairy tale story that he's telling about all of these kind of lost children. It's like Peter Pan. It's like a grim fairy tale. It's about lost yeah. children, lost people in this city. And none of them, you know, some of them are ex-members of a carnival. Some of them are still members of carnival. There's children that they seem to be orphans and they've been, you know, co-opted into a into a criminal gang. It's got a big fairy tale atmosphere. And what Mark Carrow does is he sets it in this really disturbing, dark, strange world that's really kind of weird. I mean, I watched this film like two and a half times for this and I got it more the second time. It's still the same movie, but there's a lot of things you missed the first time. Uh, and then I kind of I watched bits of it the second time just to remind myself what happened from scene to scene. I mean, I love this. I love the kind of dreamlike world. I love the, the the way these characters are. It's kind of like the characters in this story, and sort of like you know how you sometimes feel in life. They're kind of they're, they they all feel a bit cast adrift. They're all at the mercy of their circumstances, and they've got to make make sort of you know different choices to survive. So it's kind of like, you know, the loss of childhood and, and, and people, you know, stuck in, you know, I can't dream or my, you know, my life doesn't live up to my dreams. All of this stuff, it's it, but but it plays out like a dream itself. I really liked it. It's hard to describe, though. It's full of strange imagery. It is very odd. And there's sort of a flip side to this about God and creation. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit like Frankenstein. You know, Frank, you try to create something and, it, you know, and it doesn't turn out the way the creator invented and it's kind of the creator's fault. So it's a bit like Frankenstein, but it's almost more about like God, you know, maybe, maybe these, maybe all people have been like made, you know, in the image of, of, of someone else and are, and are kind of stuck with the world that they've been given. Um, there's lots of like freakshire like imagery. Um, I thought this was great. Um, it's, it definitely repays a, a rewatch, uh, and having rented it, I, I went and bought it. I thought, actually, I do actually really like this film. It's kind of, I think it it live it lives up to what I was what I thought the film would be like 
without actually being what I thought it would be like. Do you know what I mean? It can't possibly be what I imagined because I can only imagine what I've seen on a poster and it's got all sorts of other stuff going on. But it's it's exactly what I wanted this movie to be, of this strange world. Um, it's apparently modelled on Marseille, but it's all weird and trippy and kind of quite oldie-worldie. It could be from the 50s, all the contraptions and everything. And it's full of just mad, crazy ideas that I, I, I definitely think I'm going to be going back and watching it again. Because there's, there's stuff like... There's a guy who used to run the flea circus in the or, or some sort of flying insect circus in, in the carnival, and now he's invented a drug which means he can use these fleas for mind control, and the the criminal gang use him to kind of you know uh, control you know people to do their crimes for him. This it's it's packed full of ideas. It's got about three films worth of ideas, and it's really mad and really weird. But um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's like nothing else I've seen. Uh. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I didn't enjoy it, but it's one of those ones where it's like a, sort of like kind of the same ilk of Memento. You do need to kind of give it a rewatch just to kind of make sure you have followed everything that's going on. Because yeah. I watched it and then looked at like the reception this film got, and this person had written like an entire interpretation, like an anal analysis. Oh, people how, have written theses about this movie. Yeah, and how this was thing was like the whole thing was to do about the nature of capitalism and how. Yeah, I, I think I read the same article. Like that. That's interesting. I yeah, think I read the same and, um, article. I was looking at it like, well, how the fuck did you get that from this one? Because I was just trying to make sense of it, let alone write a dissertation on it. I, th um, I think I think what's interesting, though, is sorry to jump in, mate, but I think sorry. it's interesting that people people have interpreted this film in a number of different ways because the kind of strangeness of the story and not explaining everything has left it open to people to in interpret it in those different ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. I do get. I I do get that kind of. I get the sense of why people would want to completely analyse this film to bits because because it doesn't make sense. So naturally, you want to try and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what, how I perceive it. Yeah. This um, might be a hard question for you to answer because obviously after watching a film for the podcast, you then think about it so that you can talk about it now. But have you found yourself thinking about this film a lot since you watched it? Uh, I suppose the the day after it yeah i was still kind of like what what did i just watch last night yeah usually i watch a film and i go yeah that was shit or that was good i really enjoyed that i might watch that again um whereas that i was like what what have i just watched like what was that all about basically yeah. so what i took from that film and i was still thinking about it and I, was, I didn't really figure it out i didn't necessarily hate it um i i didn't think it was it wasn't as much of a headache as some of the other things that we've had to watch on this and <laughs> um, what was that one that it just kept cutting every four seconds what was dark city yeah, it, it wasn't like that. I could I could watch it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you should do that. I mean, first of all, when Dark City came out in the 90s, I think I was tuned into films cutting like that because it was very much the MTV generation. But there yeah. is actually, the version of Dark City I've got is a director's cut, which is about 15 minutes longer. And it's there are no additional scenes. They've just left in the establishing shots and not cut so stupidly between scenes and between actors. Um, because I think the, the director was forced to kind of uh, submit to like a, a cut of his film. So this has been given the room to just kind of, it plays out, doesn't it? There's a lot of kind of long, weird scenes in this. So then they didn't, this is this is exactly what they intended, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, yeah the, the, this, this one's really stuck with me. It'll be interesting to see if, if I'm not going to, I'm not going to ask you to do it. I think the, the, what would be more interesting would be if, if sometime in the future you're compelled to go back to it. 
you know what yeah. I mean? But yourself, you go, you know, I actually want to watch that again to, to see to see if it'd be interesting to see if it if it works that magic on you because it definitely did that to me. Um, yeah, there's, it's really interesting. Mark, Mark Caro is an interesting guy as well. Jean, Jean Pierre Jeunet is still making films. None of them, neither of them, have done anything in film to the to the same level of these two films they did in the nineties. Um, but Caro's got a really interesting background. He came from that new wave of seventies comic illustrators where there was a lot going on in in uh, in Europe. The French version, there's a famous influential comic called Heavy Metal that was actually the American counterpart to Metal Erlant, which was the original idea, sort of these cyberpunk and visuals of futuristic visions. He wrote a lot, did a lot of stuff for that. Um, so did Mobius, who did, who was a very big um, comic writer who, who did one of the Silver Surfer storylines and also did designs for Alien, Tron, The Fifth Element, and The Abyss. So Caro comes from that stable of strange European sci-fi sensibility. Um, and I think, you know, Jeunet has a, a fairy tale element. You know, you've got that in Amelie, but Caro is the one who brings the darkness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, that that's that. I think this was a uh, it's a it's a curious film. I think I hope we've sold it to you as something that is very different and, and strange and that you might like. Um, but yeah, that's our classic for this month. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we feature a late entry in the cycle of teen movies that dominated cinema from the early 80s onwards, which is not well known despite good reviews at the time, and possibly inventing the idea of podcasting. Our hidden gem for episode 26 is Pump Up the Volume. So, James, I don't know if you've got any history of this film either. I mean, it's kind of before your time. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how aware you are of the fact that in the 80s, the, there's always been teen movies. I mean, the 60s and 70s and even and especially 50s, they all had their teen movies. It was always a thing. But the, the, the teen movie sort of became a really defining kind of subgenre of the 80s, including like the John Hughes films, The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller and all of that stuff. And it was really significant. Were teen movies as much of a thing for you when you were a teenager? Were there film films that you look back and watch and go, "Oh yeah, that that was that was my generation's version of the teen movie"? Was it as much of a thing in your in your in I your day? Um, suppose when I was a teen, what films would I associate with being a teen film? Uh, it's sad to say, but it's probably the fucking Twilight Saga, isn't it? That's that yeah. Awful. That kind of that kind of is it. I mean, hung and in the same sense. Um, uh, Hunger Games is is a teen movie in that sense, isn't it? Right. <laughs> but but then yeah. I suppose you can count Battle Royale as a teen movie if if you if you're using those rules. I don't know because that that film's definitely in eighteen. So yeah, you know that's very much a film that adults should be watching and not I suppose like fourteen year olds. Whereas that Twilight and yeah that thing was all the rage when I was yeah. So so the, um, so the teen movies of the eighties were things like you know the Breakfast Club. Um, Ferris Bueller, Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, very, very dominated by by John Hughes. But there were lots of them. Can't buy me love, and all of these things. And there was a very definite kind of eighties style to it. And also there was kind of they looked back on as being quite nostalgic. But then when you watch them again, you go, oh, there's actually kind of uh, slightly darker, maybe you know stuff that hasn't aged well, stuff in it, stuff that maybe wouldn't be seen as appropriate these days. And this one we're, we're about to talk about was kind of the antidote to that. And these days, I think they do very different things with teen movies. I think nowadays, the teen movies are like Mean Girls, 
Um, if you look at like if you look at a list of teen movies from the twenty tens, you just pull it up. It's got Easy A, Scott Pilgrim, Submarine. Um, uh, what else has it got? Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I'm not sure if that counts. It's got no, Harry Potter. Know. Harry Potter is a teen movie for some people. Kick Ass is listed as a teen movie. I think. I think the problem is that everyone tries to target. I think any film that isn't a fifteen above could be categorized as a teen movie. Now, hear me out. No, no, I know what you mean. They're aiming for that audience well, with because, every film now, aren't they? Because if I'm if I'm thirteen and you know we're doing something, and you're like, oh, James, what do you want to do this weekend? And I've seen a a trailer for a film I want to see, and it's intrigued me. Then you have to take me as well because you're yeah. the adult. You know what I mean? You're the parent who's got the money to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and every film these days is it seems to be a twelve or an America PG thirteen so, and, and targeting the thirteen the the teenage audience. And then it ends up being the family day, and then four people go and see you know the parents and the two kids instead of just you know mm-hmm. me going myself. So I think that's why the, that's why you know the Avengers films make so much money because mm-hmm. they're fun. They're superheroes, and all the the kids go, "Oh well, mum, dad, can we go see this at the weekend?" And it becomes a whole thing. So I think, in from what, I doesn't mean every film's a teen movie. You know what I mean? Like, Twelve Years a Slave isn't a teen movie, and all these films that you know potentially could be. I know Twelve Years a Slave is a fifteen, but I'm trying to think of a film that is definitely like a twelve, but you know isn't. Like atonement. No, I've, atonement's I've, probably a twelve, but that isn't a teen movie. But yeah, yeah, any film mean. that is a box office success nowadays is a teen movie because they just want they want teens to take their parents to the cinema yeah, yeah. and make as much money as they can. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think the teen the teen movie doesn't stand out on its own as a genre anymore. Um, so to give a bit of background summary of this film, this one was made in 1990. Um, it is uh, about a shy teenager who has just moved from the East Coast where everything was happening and he loved it, to a small town in Arizona that he hates. He's struggling to fit in at school. Um, At night, he adopts an edgy, outrageous persona for a pirate radio show he broadcasts from his basement. He's an instant hit with the kids in town and gives a voice to their frustrations, um, but causes uproar among parents and the school authorities. Um, So he's kind of the symbol of teen rebellion. Um, This is the catalyst for many kids' personal problems coming to a head and reveals that all is not well at the school or in the town. Um... And this falls between between eras a little bit because by the time this this film comes out, the John Hughes teen movie era is done. Even John Hughes isn't making those movies anymore. He's he was doing things like she's having a baby, planes, trains, and automobiles, and then when did Home Alone? Um, and in the nineties, the teen movie goes off in different directions. You know, in nineties, a teen movie could be a Shakespeare adaptation uh, like um, Ten Things I Hate About You, uh, which is based on Taming of the Shrew, or an actual Shakespeare film like Romeo and Juliet or Clueless, Dazed and Confused, Rushmore, or even Scream. That's what a teen movie was in the 90s. And I think this film would have done a lot better, pump up the volume, if it had come out like five years later. Because I think in 1990, the people who went to see it really liked it. But it kind of, it was, I think people were, you know, it it, it kind of, it was either too late or too early. If it had come out in the mid, you know, the mid 80s, it would have been the really harsh, strong antidote to the sort of, sort of sickly sweet, teen movies and if it come out in the mid 90s when people were spreading their wings but it would have gone oh yeah one of those i'll go and see that and when it did come out it was like don't know what that is not going to watch it um <laughs> the director guy called alan moyle writer director he's not really done that much and this is probably the, the, the most sort of well-regarded film that he's made um he did a film called empire records in the 90s which i remember being heavily plugged when it came out but was actually a flop um and i think Again, I don't think this guy's timing is brilliant because Empire Records was trying to be like a 
not so much a teen movie, but an early 20s movie that they were doing in the 90s. They were trying to capture the grunge spirit of the age with Seattle and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all that. But it looked just too much like an 80s teen movie throwback. So he only really got what he was trying to do right once with Pump Up the Volume with this movie. Um, Christian Slater, by the end of the 80s, he's been called the new Jack Nicholson, but he hasn't had a big hit yet. And in fact, he's probably not been as big as people thought he would be at the time. He was more famous than his films were at the time. And this was very well reviewed, perfect role for him. Probably the biggest things he did were things like Interview with the Vampire and Broken Arrow, where he's not really the the, the sole he's star like the that people are relying on. Supporting yeah, yeah. actor in that, isn't he? But in nineteen ninety, he was a movie star waiting for his big film, and this could have been it. If this was if this was seen as as much as the good reviews that it got, this could have been a big hit. And Samantha Mathis is in it as well. She's making a film debut, and and she makes a big splash at the time. A lot of people, you know, she's been talked about as the next young star. Um, but it's post Brat Pack. I mean, we talked about the Brat Pack era in the past. Those films got on momentum because there were these actors that everyone wanted to see, like Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez. Um, you know, you know, Patrick Swayze is in it for a while, or you know, Ali Sheedy. All of these these teen movie you know actors. And this doesn't have that support structure around it. So it kind of comes out and gets missed out. I'm not sure if it's a great title. I mean, do you think this title tells you what the film's about? Not at all. So it's not a great title. Um, other than that, I just think, you know, it spoke to teenagers and how they were feeling at the time, but I just don't think it was the kind of film teenagers were flocking to see anymore. I think you put your finger on what, what teenagers are watching because in 1990, you've got Die Hard 2, Total Recall, Back to the Future 3, Pretty Woman, Ghost... And rather than maybe in the old days, teen teenagers are going to see their films at least as much as they're going to see the main films. I think by that time, teenagers are going to go and see all the big films. So it's kind of done. Um, a lot of this must have seemed strange for you, this film, mate, because a lot of it is just it just doesn't exist anymore. You know, the fact that, you know, not everyone can access the cool music and the fact that this guy's got some records that he bought in New York that they've not seen in Arizona yet. That's not a thing anymore. If you like some music, you can find it somewhere. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't say it was confusing, but like it wasn't. It was a. This this is like a period drama for you because you know <laughs> there's no internet, there's no mobile phones, there's radio rather than podcasding, and the idea that it's well, all regulated. Hold on, I, come I, I still sensi- remember when we had shit internet. I remember when the internet <laughs> went off when we had a phone, and I remember that first computer we had in yeah. our first house. So I still remember that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. the one that's kind of like seen it go from that to you know what it is now but for me i think kind of going back to the whole teen movie thing see when you're saying things like the breakfast club and 10 things i hate about you to me those are kind of like teen movies they're like just after the kind of age period of stand by me and the goonies and that that's what i think of when i think of a teen movie whereas i don't know i didn't did i get that vibe from this thing i thought this was a bit more dramatic yeah, you know, I think like it wasn't as petulant as like, you know, the Breakfast Club for me is just a bunch of kids that are like in detention just being kind of knobs. Not knobs, but like they're just they're, oh, they're yeah, just I like mean, grumpy the, teenagers, you know what I mean? Whereas this didn't have that kind of vibe. I mean, I'm I, yeah, I'm from the generation of people who watched Breakfast Club when I was the target audience <laughs> and loved it. And then as soon as I was a bit older than that, I watched it again and thought that was shit. Um, so there's a certain thing. I, th- I think I think this stands the test of time a lot better than those films. But you're right; it 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 it, do- it, it rejects a lot of the normal teen movie stuff because I think it's it's more serious in tone, um, even though it does have some of the same. You know, the uh, teen rebellion is very much a thing in it, um, and all that stuff's going on. But it it does play out very differently. I mean, it's, it's got storylines in it that just don't exist anymore. The idea that someone would rather than have a podcast or a live blog, they've got to. 
um, set up their own pirate radio station with um, equipment in the basement. How their parents didn't realize that was going on, by the way, is a huge plot hole. But and then and then the the federal regulator can come in and go because it's illegal to have your own radio show without being signed off by the FCC. That's not a thing now. This none of this is regulated. No one's regulating our podcast. You know what I mean? Um, so it's. But it does capture something of the teenage boredom and disaffection of that time. It still applies today. And it very much, much captures the spirit of that late 80s, early, early 90s. I mean, the reason I threw this out is the, let's do, do this is the hidden gem. So I remember we were talking about um, a, a, a feature last month. I said it's the idea that there's, um, there's no one and nothing left to believe in. And that's a quote from this film. And it's this idea that there's, you know, there's no more heroes anymore. It's quite punky in that sense. And I, I mean, again, I... I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed watching it again. But I do think it's it's for people it's for people who were teenagers when it came out for sure. Yeah, I'd, again, like this has been quite a good month because a lot of the time the films we get are just they're so dated for me that they're I don't enjoy them. But I didn't necessarily not enjoy this one. I just wouldn't call it a teen movie. Is the yeah. only gripe I had with that. I feel like that maybe that was the problem it had because everyone was sick of teen movies by this point mm-hmm. that it didn't give Christian Slater his big break that he you know was needing and things like that. Well, that's right. Um, I think I think teenagers might perhaps looked at it and gone, oh, I don't want to watch another teen movie. I want to watch Die Hard. And the, those people who did go and see this film are going, actually, this is more like the kind of movie that speaks bit, to teenagers. Yeah. Um, so that's not a gripe I have with it. I think maybe that kind of answers the question as to why it wasn't as big of a splash and why Christian Slater is Christian Slater. Really, I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's very good in this. He's, I a, mean, he's, he's a good actor. He is a good actor and I've enjoyed the things he's been in, but I think he's now better in like his TV work. It's, um, it's interesting. It's just one of those people. I mean, and to be honest, this is what would have happened to Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds if he hadn't got Deadpool. Because yeah. if you don't get the part that's absolutely spot on for you and it doesn't reach the audience and people go, ah, oh, that's what he's for. Right, here exactly, we go. Yeah. Um, Christian Slater just never got that break. And, I mean, he did two movies. He did this one and he did Heathers. Heathers is a great film. I can't Heathers call it... Heathers is a pure cult classic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's very hard to call it a hidden gem because although it wasn't a hit at the time, it's been thoroughly deserved, discovered as a great movie. Um, and it was like... Honestly, they were saying, this guy could be the new Jack Nicholson. But they just... What Jack Nicholson got was a big break, and and Christian Slater never quite got. I'm not sure he's quite the actor Jack Nicholson is, but he um, different. But yeah. but he's a he's a very very good actor who never quite got anything. I think he's really good. And yeah, he's got no. some great monologues and speeches, and this this film lends itself to that. We've talked about using DJs in films before, and the you know that that idea of speaking into a microphone, and there's a level of intimacy around it. The fact that he the you know the love interest from this movie sort of is is becomes attracted to him through what he's saying over the microphone before she becomes attracted to him in real life. It's, it, there's some good stuff going on in it. Um, but yeah, I think as a teen movie, it just, um, it, it, it didn't like have an environment to be part of. It was kind of out on its own and it, it just didn't, you know, just didn't reach anyone, did it? Maybe, maybe that's actually what it is. People were still into teen movies and it's not really a proper kind of cheesy teen movie. I think a lot of people have sort of found it afterwards and gone, oh, right, yeah, this is good. Wait. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's what this one is. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you found it an interesting thing to watch. Um, I will take on board your constructive criticism that sometimes the films we select for this are difficult for you. No, I'm not, I'm not a constructive <laughs> criticism. I just, you know, when, when we put on Seven Samurai, yeah. oh, fuck me, that was not fun. 
Yeah. I know that that was a film that you, you, that is one of your favorite films, but for me, fuck, that was three hours of nothing. I may I may have made a tactical error in that because that was not the first um, uh, Akira Kurosawa film that I watched. So by the time I watched it, I kind of had what Kurosawa was doing down. Um, it's uh, you know my palate had been kind of uh, you know associated to him because I'd seen Yojimbo and Rashomon and Ran, and it was easier to kind of then do Seven Samurai. I might have got, I might have I might have. Um, no, no, underserved I, I, you on that one, mate. No, no, you're more than entitled to like those kind of films, but you know, it'd be like me making you watch what would be something like, say, I was an idiot and pure loved Love Island. It'd be like me, like putting Love Island on for you, and then, um, you know, all because I like it, you know, doesn't mean that you necessarily have yeah, to yeah. like it. And and I always preface of any of these classics say so we're just watching them to watch them, and then whatever response we get to them is valid. Do you know what I mean? For absolute one hundred percent clarity, I hate Love Island. So, so, <laughs> yes. so yeah, I would give you a chance to 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 uh, to, to clarify that, mate. Utter dross. <laughs> yep. So that's our hidden gem. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it, especially if you were a teenager at the time. And and like uh, like James says, it's not your typical teen movie. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at one of the classic tall tales in the pantheon of unrealised projects, in which a promising writer submitted a script which was instantly hailed as genius, and had top draw filmmakers queuing up to make it, but somehow ended up being bounced around the studio in development hell for decades, and its ideas plundered for other films. The one that got away for episode 26 is Claire Noto's The Tourist. So, had you heard of The Tourist before I suggested this? Well, as a, is this one of like the, a big story that you'd heard of before? or Well, no, see, the only film that I've seen called The Tourist is that god-awful film with Johnny Depp and... Yeah, it's not that. Angelina Jolie. And I thought, Lord above, this is not what that film is based on. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. Um... So, no, I didn't... So with that, I then had to go and do some actual reading into it um, because I didn't want to have the preconceptions of this film being Johnny Depp's awful mm, face-swapping film <laughs> um, with Angelina Jolie. God, that film's shit, It is it? dog shit, isn't it? It's amazing how much money they got spent on that. Um, so, Did it? Yeah, it was... Well, it didn't make... It didn't do very well, but it was it was expensive. Um, it was a big flop. Um, Why? I've no <laughs> idea. It's one of... It's, you know... The, we'll we'll get onto the actual tourist in a minute, but the, that film, the tourist, is a classic example of those films that could have cost about half what it eventually cost, but they decided to throw money at it anyway for no added benefit. Oh, it's shit! It doesn't even. Oh, no, never mind. Yeah, sorry. So, what what did you find out when you when you looked up this film? Um, oh, I did a little bit of looking into um, Claire Noto because she's not Noto she's clue. she's not she's not a big. Yeah. Figure in films, to be fair. I had no idea who 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 she was. Um, so yeah, that was basically my kind of starting point for that. I had to look into Claire Noto and then look into this film. Um, there's, you know, she didn't even have like a Wikipedia entry. No, she um, doesn't. So there was very little to go off. Um, yeah, and and did, and did you find much out about the actual sort of life cycle of development held that this film was in or anything like that? 
Well, what I did find was, again, shout out Reddit. Someone had put this thing on the thread of, um, does anyone have a good copy of Claire Noto's The Tourist? The only PDF I found is barely readable. So, um, and then I, and then I found that and just gave like a little bit, I didn't read the entire thing, but you know, gave it a quick read to just kind of get some yeah. of the idea of what she was writing and how she was writing it and basically where she was going to take that story. And yeah. it seems rather intriguing. Yeah, intriguing um, is the word I thought because I, I I think I got exactly the same copy of the script as you and had a read of it, and I thought intriguing was a I, the reason why people like the script and the reason why it sort of went on the journey it did is because there's this intriguing but slightly elusive idea in this script, isn't there? It could have been it could have been a remake, Hate Watch, Hidden Gem, because um, not remake, Hate Watch, Hidden Gem. What am I talking about? One that got away, Hidden Gem, because yeah. it's that hidden on the internet that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you couldn't really. Um, find a lot about it but yeah there was a yeah it's yeah, interesting very I mean, interesting idea sorry yeah um, i mean it's interesting normally we discuss most of the time but not all the time when we discuss a one that got away on this feature it's in the context primarily of a director who was trying to get the film made um we've done a couple of things where it passed through a couple of different directors like the superman film was more about the producers and writers that, that were trying to do it the directors came and went although tim burton was was the main one in this one, this is really about a screenwriter and her script, um, and she's the mainstay of this story. Um, what I found about Claire Noto was that she entered the film industry in the 70s as an assistant editor and assistant director and, and, and other roles. At the same time in the 70s, she was working as a writer on the Marvel comic series Red Sonja, which is like a female Conan the Barbarian, if you're not familiar with that, mate. Okay, right, I follow. Um she didn't see herself as a sci-fi fan or writer. This is probably what what, what you found out as well. Um, there's a there's the book um, the, the greatest sci-fi films never made by David Hughes. Which when I when I went, I've got for this feature, I've got a bunch of things that I want to do. But if we're going to do this podcast for a long time, and hopefully we are, I'm going to need a few more. And that was a book I bought to kind of find other stories, and it's in here. It's one of the big ones because this 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 lasts about well, this film. This is like 40 years and counting a development hell because they're still talking about making this movie. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but what, what, that, what that book says, she didn't see herself as a sci-fi fan or writer, but she'd had an idea which would work best as sci-fi. So she wrote something in a sci-fi context that, that told the story she was trying to sell. There were two main inspirations. There's an old film called The Day the Earth Stood Still from the 1950s. Is that the one that's got Keanu Reeves in it? That's, the, that's the remake, yeah. That's yeah. going to be a remake Hate Watch one day. Oh, the, dear, the, oh, the originals dear. are classic and they should never have gone near it. But it's about an alien who comes to Earth to warn hu- the human race of impending destruction. And the main kind ca- species, yeah. No, well, he was actually saying your, your impending destruction of, of your own making kind of thing. It was one oh, of those, you're right, going to destroy, okay. destroy yourselves warnings. And the main character looks human and for large parts of the film wears the same clothes as us and looks like us and is living among us. And she found that interesting and went, well, what if the story is not so much here's an alien and and they look like us, but here's a person who looks like us, and you find out over the course of the film that they're an alien, and they're living among us. She also had, saw this photograph of a woman running away from a motel bathed in neon light. It was one of those, you know, when like artistic photographers put on a gallery exhibition of photographs that they've done, and there, this was a picture of a woman running away from a motel, and there's this neon light glowing inside the windows of this motel, and she declared no to look at that. I wonder what she's running from, and that sparked her imagination. 
And out of this, she spun this story that the tourist, the main character calls herself Grace Ripley in her human form. And she initially appears to be a woman, a wealthy professional who runs a, some sort of company in New York. But actually, she's an alien who can take on human form, who's been exiled here from her home planet. People are sent to Earth as human. These aliens are sent to Earth as like a punishment. You're not allowed back home. Like Australia. Yeah, pretty much. This is this is, um, the, you know, in, in, this is 18th century Australia or 19th century Australia to the rest of the universe. Yes. Um, she is one of a number of such aliens. They've been exiled for different reasons. Some of them because they're unsavory characters. So you have to watch yourself around them, and others might be, I don't know, political prisoners. It's very. It's very elusive in the script. I don't know if you found this. Some of these people, it's obvious why they've been exiled because they're scum. And some of them, you're going, I don't know why you've been exiled. It's interesting. I'd, li- I'd like to know. And it kind of, it's intriguing yeah. what's really going on. Not all of the aliens can take on human form. So they're confined to what's essentially a prison camp. And it's essentially, it's mainly in New York, isn't it, mate? There are bits where she goes out of New York. But in the main, she's in New York. And like New York is like... It's always New York, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, and, and basically, New York is hiding this kind of secret world of aliens. Um, and... What what sort of in that script? What what uh, what jumped out at you about the story that Claire Noto was telling? Um, obviously, the main theme is like just intolerance and xenophobia. That's why I drew from it. It was yeah. the whole, you know, these they have to hide who they are because they wouldn't be accepted if we saw their yeah, true form. Because that, and that's still a thing. That's still a thing today. Um, but for me, the main thing I took from it is that oh, Neil Neil Blomkamp is very lucky this film didn't get made because <sighs> District Nine is the film that made yeah. Neil Blomkamp. Yeah, yeah. And made him his millions, and that film is. Claire Noto was wanting to write this film about forty years before that one came out. 30 yeah, years and that, they out. talked about Under the Skin as well. But I think Under the Skin is a very different film, and I don't think Under the Skin stole from this film. But I think this film has kind of bled into. Um, this story is bled into the film world, and it's it's part of. I mean, it's not Which the first. That again is that the one with Scarlett Johansson? Scarlett Johansson driving it's a van around in Glasgow looking for um, sexual partners slash victims. Um, and she looks like a, a human, but she's actually an alien kind of a slug creature. Um, so there's definite mm-hmm. kind of similarities to that. Um, I mean, this wasn't the first film to do this sort of thing, because obviously The Day the Earth Stood Still was an inspiration, and The Man Who Fell to Earth came out in the 70s as well with Bowie as an alien in human form, and there's similar ideas there that like living here is killing him, but he's kind of trapped... I mean, Grace Ripley's character and some of the other characters in in the story, they're trapped on Earth for two reasons. One, because they've been exiled here and it's not easy to go back. (laughs) And the other one is because they start to become embroiled in life here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because essentially the living on this planet is kind of bad for these aliens. Having sexual attraction on this planet seems to be bad for them and they kind of changes them physically. Um, and some people are able to use sex as almost like a weapon to kill people with, and there's all kinds of strangeness going on that it's changing the, these aliens biologically down here, and it, it's it's partly about kind of that it plays into that xenophobia theme you're talking about. These people of these aliens have got sexual drives or sexual like uh, characteristics which are normal to them but seem strange to everyone else. Um, and it's hard for them to act them out, but it's it it, it's, it, it kills it. It almost kills you if you don't act on them, but it kills you if you do. Do you know what I mean? So it's got this kind of very kind of ambivalent and strange, almost perverse attitude to sexuality. Um, I think I don't know if you agree, mate, but I I think there's I can see why everyone was intrigued by this script, but I can also see why they found it so hard to make because it's what well, it's you can vi- I think you can visualize sort of what they were trying to do with it, but like then making it just, might be a different matter. Yeah, no, totally. Um, 
What was really interesting about the film they originally talked about making was that various studios wanted to do it. And the idea was, the idea that developed was, let's get a filmmaker, a director to do this. And let's get H.R. Giger from Alien and that aborted attempt to do the, um, the Dune films. Let's get him to do the alien designs. And that's what's going to make this film interesting is because it'll actually bring to life the strange alien world. And that being concealed and then revealed inside our world is going to be what makes this whole thing tick. Um, Ridley Scott was briefly attached, but he was only attached because Blade Runner wasn't getting going fast enough for his liking. And he thought, well, if this might not happen, what shall I do instead? And they were going, well, really, really loved Alien, and you've worked with H.R. Giger, you fancy doing this. So he was doing it for a bit, but then Blade Runner got going again, and he and and he wasn't going to give up Blade Runner for anything, right? That's his like life's work. Um, there's another director called Brian Gibson, who's not that well known. He did the Tina Turner movie, if you remember. Okay. And Frank Rodham, who um, is more well known for like Quadrophenia, the like the mod movie from uh, uh, set in the the, the 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 60s, but made in like the 70s, and he did a couple of other things. Um, so it probably didn't get attached to the director that it needed to get attached to to actually make it happen. And the other problem that they had is that, well, there's two things. One, that no one could quite decide whether to make this as a small independent film that where you could like retain like the kind of slightly strange and unusual themes. The stuff that you and I both found interesting about the script work better in an indie film. But in 1980s Hollywood, the only way you can do this is with big expensive special effects, Right. And if you try and make this a big budget movie, everyone's trying to say, well, I don't quite like all this strangeness. Can we can we make it different? So you either you either make the film with insufficient resources to do it visually, or you make it in a way that changes the original story to something that it wasn't. And I think they never quite solved that problem. Also, Claire Noto fell out with pretty much everyone she she was working with on this. And this partly because Sorry, is she like a pure difficult person? Do we know that about her? Or? She is. And, well, I think there's 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 arguments on both sides of this. Uh, there's a producer called Rene Missel, who sounds like a bit of a bastard. She was um, in frequent conflict with Claire Noto. And um, this bounced around one studio. Then the studio gave it up. And then the studio tried to do it. Then it went back to Universal, originally done it, and away. And then back to Universal over and over. And, and two things, Claire Nota was not a Hollywood person and couldn't really navigate the politics. She thought that once it had been given up by the first studio that she owned it all again. But actually, the producer, Rene Missile, had been involved in the development. She still had a legal right to be involved in it, and they really fell out over that. But Rene Missile started trying to make the film and tell, telling Claire Noto, well, actually, we're not even going to give you credit for this because I'm going to develop this without you. And Claire Noto thought that basically Hollywood were a bunch of kind of bastards who were taking her idea away from her. And I think there's some merit in that argument, but all the people that were interviewed for this story, Brian Gibson, Frank Rodham, uh, other people, said that Claire Nota was really hard to work with. Brian Gibson said if you suggested any changes to the story, she would just immediately hit the roof. Do you know what I mean? I don't think she ever got the idea that even a script that comes out fully formed and is perfect, and you can see why they made it into a movie like The Usual Suspects, right? It changes in the production process. And this movie was things that work and things that don't. Yeah, and this movie was a great idea that doesn't work one hundred percent already and needs development. And she was unable to cooperate with other people, so it's a bit on both sides, I think. Um, they're also very unfortunate that for about four years they were caught up in Francis Ford Coppola's kind of studio, and which was about to go under. So for three or four years they couldn't actually get moving because Coppola wanted to do the film but didn't have the money. Um, and wouldn't let it go and was trying to get money for his other projects that were failing it's not Coppola's finest hour the film was stuck for that for four years and you know basically it's the 90s and still haven't got this film made yeah. and 
and I think that the final nail in the coffin, um, apparently Clanoto did a, a new version of the script, which I haven't seen. I've seen the version that you saw, mate, which dates to around 1981. So it's not the very, very first version she did, but it's very early. Um, so I don't know what she did with the new version, but apparently she was really happy. Oh, I think I've really got it now. I think this is going to work now. I've not seen that version of the script. But she delivered that new version to Universal, who were getting ready to make the movie, and it might have happened. Um, and that year, Men in Black came out, which is basically the mainstream popcorn blockbuster version of exactly the same story, at which point they went, shit, well, can't do it now. Um, so it was done. And I, I think, now I think maybe they think enough time's passed that they're going to try and do it again. It'd be interesting to see what they do. Um, various actresses were linked with playing the main character. Now, Sigourney Weaver was never actually formally linked, but I thought she would have been perfect back in the day. I'm not sure if she would have thought a bit too close to other stuff that she did, like being called Ripley again and dealing with alien creatures. Um, Kathleen Turner was mentioned, Madonna, Michelle Pfeiffer, Teresa Russell. I think Michelle Pfeiffer is the most interesting person that was mentioned because she was a big enough name to get something going at that time and crying out for a part. She didn't She didn't quite get the roles at the time, and this would have been great for her, I think. Um, but it it's partly changing times. The other, the other problem they've got making this is that they're trying to make this film in the 80s and, and it's kind of, it comes from the 70s. It's got a very downbeat tone, like exploring new sexuality. It's got an independent spirit. By the 80s, things are really, really different. The first hidden gem that was ever on this podcast, Blowout, was a box office flop, mainly because it came out in 1981 and not 1976. So partly this film's coming out at the wrong time. This is a 70s film trying to be made in the 80s. And we also talked about how it fell between the two stools. Um, you know, given that she worked in the comics industry, it might have been better if she'd made the story as a graphic novel because then she'd have been able to control it herself, do it her way, solve the problems that works as a story. And then if it was a popular comic in its own right, it might have had more momentum to get made. But when it's just a script and she's not a big name, she's just kind of drifting around the system and never getting out of it. Um, I don't know what you thought about because it's, it's it's led by female characters and, and unconventional sexuality, which I don't think was a thing the 80s did. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that those films were getting made in the 80s, were they? Um, yeah, it feels like a... F it feels like with this kind of film, like it was just the, a great idea, just the wrong time. And then yeah. by the time they could have made it, like you say, Men in Black came out, which is just... That's just yeah. devastating for the, the people yeah. who are desperate to make it. But... I'm. I'm not going to lie. I don't. I'm not too keen on this Claire Noto. Um, this Claire Noto woman. I think she's. Uh, she's made it very difficult for herself. I know. Like, there's got to be some sort of compromise. There's got to be some. You've got to be able to work with other people, and she can't work with other people. And if you can't, then you can't. Like, there's, you know, you got to if they suggest an idea, and they're the people that are putting the money into the film. You listen to it, and you can diplomatically talk about it. Don't just. Yeah take it to 100 right away so yeah i agree I think the fault that and this is a i mean it sounds like the everything she wanted to do in this film has kind of been done across several films now men in black yeah. um district nine and that kind of thing i feel like it's already yeah been done, so. and we talked about under the skin starman did a lot of the same thing as well um so not and i don't think starman nicked from it but i think it's it, it's a lot of other people have taken their bucket to the same well do you know what i mean and now there's not as much left yeah I can so, see, I can see a, a world in which this could get made, and the the name I'm going to throw out is the one who I think could could make this happen, and that's David Cronenberg. Yeah, he could have made it happen then, and I think he could still make it happen now. Now, now he's not he's not making mainstream films anymore. He was for a time. He did uh, the Dead Zone, and he did um, the Fly, and proved himself actually to say that you can do the Cronenberg thing in a in a big movie. 
He's not in that space anymore. He's now just, you know, before he retires, he's going to make a few more films that he wants to make his way. But I think he's ideal for this material. I think the visual effects and other things that you're trying to do for this movie, I think are more achievable now on a bit of an indie budget. Um, if you're someone like Cronenberg. Cronenberg's like the biggest name, in, in, in one of the biggest names in like independent films. Do you know what I mean? He's not he's not so huge that he's going to get the next Marvel film, right? But he's very big in it, it, within the types of films he makes. And he's incredibly skilled. He's a fantastic director. And he's really good at making an idea work. So I think he could definitely make this. And all of this stuff about the, the sexual contact, the alien stuff, the I'm not quite sure what's going on in this story, so someone needs to keep me interested. He's perfect for all of that. Um, and I was thinking someone like Charlize Theron would be very good in the main part. They give that sort of... Um, uh, she was she was the person that appeared in my head. Well, Sigourney Weaver was actually the person in my head when I was reading the script because I was thinking about it being made back then. But now I could see Charlize Theron being the person who could do that lead character, and I think she'd be interested in doing it. But um, it, honestly, it's on IMDb as as in possible production or could be made or announced. It might never happen. I think the chances are it will never happen. But I think there's there's a world in which it could. I think maybe enough time has passed since the first Men in Black film that if you really got the right person and the right mix together, but uh, I think the odds are against this one. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an older classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we're looking at one of the all-time Hall of Famers of bad remakes, which almost seems to have purposely made the worst possible version of the story that it could. In a rare example of cinematic justice, the director ended up going to jail as a result of inv involvement in this film. Oh. We, are, we are proud to present this milestone in the pantheon of the remake Hate Watch for episode 26, the 2002 version of Rollerball. So, probably the original Rollerball film from 1975 is not something that was a big part of your world, mate. No, I watched it, but... Um... I wasn't too keen on it. Put it this way, it wasn't. It wasn't for me. Um, it's. I mean, one of those ones. In 1975's Rollerball, it wasn't for everyone when it came out. In fact, it's got a. I mean, essentially, it, it imagines a future in which American football has been replaced by roller derby, which is potentially a very silly idea. And then the film is done with a very, very serious tone, and that wasn't for everyone. Um, it's kind of, and, and and also, it's very much a commentary on the world of 1975. It's a commentary on the way violent team sports are used to promote the American way of life and corporate power. There's some very typical 70s tropes like loss of individuality, corporate anthems replacing the national anthem, no nation states. It's very typical in its style with its 70s sci-fi costumes and all of that. It does teeter on the verge of being silly. Um What's it, one of the things that's interesting about it is it ended up popularizing exactly what it was criticizing in a similar fashion to The Running Man, the um, uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, um, which actually inspired Ameri the American TV networks that they were criticizing to make pretty much that show in American Gladiators. And the original book that it was based on by Stephen King has inspired any number of reality TV shows where someone's being hunted across the country. 
people watched this, enjoyed the rollerball sport so much, they tried to set up their own rollerball leagues to the horror of their actors going, why would you agree with this? This is disgraceful. Do you know what I mean? And it's one of those things where satire can backfire. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I did think there was an interesting parallel with the original film and Colin Kaepernick. The idea that if someone does try to show any individuality or kind of stand up against some things they disagree with, uh, the, the system sort of tries to smash them a little bit. Um, but it doesn't, you know, the, the future that, that um, Rollerball predicted is kind of just about here and doesn't look anything anything like the film predicted. But it's um, it was an enjoyable 70s sci-fi at the time. Do you know what I mean? Right. The big question is why anyone would want to remake it at all. It's kind of, what, what are you trying to say? Do you know what I mean? Could, I mean, and could you discern what the remake was trying to say? No, I mean, the first one wasn't for me. This The remake definitely wasn't for me. It was just, it was just messy. I don't... I like films that have a kind of point to what they're doing, and I didn't really see the fucking point of this. Yeah, I mean, if I actually wrote a checklist of what are the what are the things not to do when you're doing a remake, right? And you know, it's like this film does all the things that you shouldn't do when you're remaking a film. First of all, it's a pretty random choice of an old film that isn't exactly still a household name anymore, remade for the 21st century for no apparent reason. They completely strip it of the original context and political kind of like thinking behind the film. There's some very brief stuff about how capitalism makes things like this happen and the desperation of poor people. But otherwise, what is this? This is all happening in Kazakhstan for cable TV. It's hard to go into the heart of the American system. <laughs> replace the original star with someone who's clearly not up to the task. James Kahn in the original is replaced by Chris Klein in the new one. That's no contest. Yeah, fuck that. They change an inexperienced veteran. The original sport is the idea is that rollerball is already quite established, right? And it kind of, you go along with it a bit better because, all right, just imagine this is NFL football and I get what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? Um, and James Kahn's character, Jonathan, in the original is a veteran who's maybe in his last couple of seasons. Whereas in this one, it's a startup league and a 22-year-old rookie, which doesn't have any of the same resonance. Why do we care about a rookie who's gone to Kazakhstan to try out a new sport? It's just not the same thing. And I don't know if you noticed this, Chris Klein had to have fake stubble in one of the scenes. Because <laughs> he looks so fresh-faced and they wanted him to look a little bit edgier and they went, well, do you have any stubble? Sorry. And it's like, it's not Chris Klein's fault. This is not a role for a 22-year-old. Um, they also amped up the entire original concept with ludicrous special effects so that it doesn't even make any sense. I mean, really? They're doing like giant backflips on roller skates in what looks like a, I don't know, an exploding hamster wheel? Um the other thing they did to make this, to almost guarantee the failure of this film, is that they, apparently the original script did a good job of the story, and they just stripped, you know, completely changed it to replace it with just crashy, bashy nonsense. And then after filming it, they took what was an R-rated bone-smashing blood and nudity fest um, and cut it down because they realised that if you spend $90 million in a film in 2002, it needs to be PG-13. So they cut pretty much everything people would want from the movie out of it. And the level of editing just means that none of the story makes any sense anymore. I mean, it's yeah, it it's if if you want to make a film not work, they've done all the things that will guarantee the film doesn't work. And it's weird that this film was directed by the guy who did Predator and Die Hard. Yeah. Have you have you heard the story about how he went to jail over this film? No, run that by me, sorry. So unsurprisingly, for a, a film whose production was as troubled as this. John McTiernan fell out with at least one of the producers over the direction of the film, to the point that the all communication had broken down. And John McTiernan hired a private investigator to follow and monitor what this other film producer was doing, because he was worried that this guy was going to turn the film into something else other than he wanted to do it. 
The first thing about that that's mad is that imagine John McTiernan's doing that over Die Hard. Now that's the film you're going to be remembered for positively all your life. You might want to fight for the direction of that film. But do you want to go to these lengths to fight for the direction of this film? Is this film worth fighting for? I don't get it. Hmm. And where, where, he, where, he got, where he went most terribly wrong is that he, he authorised the private detective to conduct illegal wiretaps on the guy. Okay. Which is not just a criminal offence, it's a federal offence. So he was getting sued, he was getting in trouble. He met, One more film of his got released and then none since then because it trashed his reputation in Hollywood. And then in about 2010, he was sentenced to like 18 months in jail and he had to pretty much give up his entire fortune to, for the legal fees. And he went to jail for like two years for um, illegal wiretaps. And it's just weird. This is not a film you want to go to jail for. This film isn't worth fucking getting a slap on the wrist for, you know? That's absolutely wild. But it's... <laughs> The whole thing makes no sense. I mean, this guy is a uh, someone who wanted to do NHL hockey in America. That doesn't work out for him because he's a bit too wild for his own good. So he goes to Kazakhstan, as you do, to join this new breakaway sports league that no one's heard of. And then four months later, he's like the biggest star in the sport. And now, what is it about being a great ice hockey player that would enable you to do somersaults on roller skates and play this completely different sport where there are motorcycles <laughs> flying around and you've got to throw a metal ball into a hole? It just doesn't make a blind doesn't bit of yeah, sense. Um, there are three main characters who don't interact in a normal way for most of the film. For example, I actually don't care too much about spoilers. It turns out the whole league is evil, so they try and escape the country. But the three main characters don't try to escape together, even though the two of them are romantically involved. It just... So much that happens is nonsensical, probably because it was just cut together, but it's, there are also gaping plot holes. There's like, part of the main storyline that kind of, you know, sets it all off is that the league is deliberately making dangerous events happen to make it more dramatic, but the sport is already so stupid and dangerous. Why would they bother? Do you know what I mean? And it's almost like it's actually very dangerous and you could see someone could get hurt and people get injured in the middle of the sport. Why do they think it's better for their global image and they're trying to win the American market if people are actually being killed in gruesome ways? It's like, really? It just And the fact that this is happening in Kazakhstan, that means nothing. What does that say about the American system that this is happening in Kazakhstan? They can't even say anything like, oh, the Americans are paying for this. Do you know what I mean? They're using it as their trial league. There's just nothing... The whole thing just the whole sport is turned into some sort of circus sleigh midair fighting in rollerblades. The whole thing is fucking dog shit. There's an extended night vision chase sequence, which I don't get why they did it. And what who why is it in night vision? Who's got night vision goggles on? We're just watching it in night vision. It's just it's just nonsensical. I mean, was there anything you liked about this film? Was there anything nope. that you found to be decent? Nope. I mean, there's even a bit where he, he skates up and he bangs the wall and the band that's providing live accompanying music for, for the for the sport start playing a tune for him to do his next thing to. And it's like, oh my God. Fuck right off. It's just bollocks. I mean, Jean Reno looks like he's having a good time as the villain, but it's just... It's just embarrassing for everybody involved. It, it re- All I would say to people at, at home listening to this... This film does have to be seen to be believed. So if you can get it for free, if you can stream it and not not pay for it, it's worth a watch just to go, wow, they did this? Because it's fucking incredible. They made an unbelievably shit film. They really, really hit this one out of the park if making a shit film is what they were trying to do.
We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on The Big Conversation, which this month features real people whose lives deserve to be made into a film. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. The podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we're grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.